ready to begin. What year is this? The year is 2020, and this is Beyond Sin. Hey there, welcome to the show. This is Beyond Synth episode... Shit, what episode is this? (laughs) I've been on a break for a few weeks, so let's see here. Well, this is episode 220, and what a perfect number to start the 2020 season of Beyond Synth. I am Andy Last, and I host this show. This show is a hybrid interview music program where I talk to artists and producers in and around the synthwave scene who make cool music and we listen to music from all sorts of awesome artists in and around the synthwave scene and we've got a bunch of music to play today and a very long conversation with Ollie Ride. So I hope you guys had a lovely Christmas or holiday or whatever it is you celebrate or I hope you just had a good time. This year is starting out to be slightly different than anticipated. (laughs) I, I went into this year honestly with plans of like, oh, this year we're going to move forward and we're going to make all these changes and, uh, you know, we're kind of starting fresh and doing all this stuff. And then uh, the year just started with a bunch of setbacks. And oddly enough, a lot of people I know also had these weird setbacks two weeks in and already this year just feels weird. And so I'm like, fuck this, man. We got to make this year good. We're going to have to do it ourselves. And that is what we're going to do. So let's listen to some music and get this show on the road get this show on the road yeah that's the expression i was gonna say get this show on the roll but it's now the guys at outland actually sent this to me like last year i feel like i've been listening to this song for like three months but it's on morgan willis's new album and this track is called coma
that was Coma by Morgan Willis or Morgan Willie. That's Coma C dot O dot M dot A. And that is a cool song. And it is brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. And over the holidays, we got some new patrons. So let's thank them. We got a new pledge from Caffeinated Pixels. Thanks for supporting the show. And then we got a new donation of the beast from Sandbox General. That's the triple six. So thanks, dude. And a new uh, member of the $25 Club, Anthony. Thank you for your support. You're a cool guy. Anthony is a cool guy. All right, and I got an email here. This is from uh, Dennis LaFunk. He co-hosted an episode of High Five last season. And I guess I was sort of vague (laughs) when the last season of the show was ending, what the plans were for this season. So would you believe I'm still sort of figuring it out? But essentially, because of the naming conventions of file names and stuff, um, that's why I'm not doing the High Five this year, because... I just want all the Beyond Synths to be in order and numbered correctly. So, we're still going to have Julian coming in, but what we're going to do, and bear with me, it'll probably be rocky for the first few weeks, is we're going to be doing a live show and a regular Beyond Synth show. The plan will probably be to do the live shows Tuesday nights. And I know, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I can't tune in because of where I live. And that's fine. We will then post the live shows probably on Fridays. So just like when we used to post the high five, the live shows will post on Fridays. And but they might even air Tuesday nights. So it's sort of like, you know, a nice little bonus. If you can uh, actually tune in then you get to hear the episode a few days early. And if you can't, it doesn't matter. Anyway, this is a message from Dennis. Dennis LaFunk. He says, first, I wanted to wish a happy new year to the Beyond Synth community. This goes out to all the hardworking producers out there. A new decade arrived, and I noticed that people are not so much into Synthwave. Don't get me wrong. There are still amazing albums dropping, but there are less and less. My suggestion, we need to evolve. We need to bring the genre to the mainstream. Progressive House would be the perfect marriage with Synthwave. You notice that the Midnight Remix album on Silk Music is played by famous DJs all around the world. That's the way to go in 2020. And then in brackets, sorry for my spelling. Hope you read this in your radio show. If not, I needed to express myself. I respect you so much for what you did for Synthwave. Well, listen, I think Dennis has a point. You know, I was going into this year thinking we got to make some changes around here to push forward and onwards and upwards and through and all that stuff. I'm going to be making an effort this year to do more things that sort of aim outside of the synthwave scene while still inviting people in and sharing the music. I think that all of you who listen to the show um, who are in the synthwave community already know about a lot of this stuff. And I think it's time we try to sort of send the message outwards. And the message I'm talking about is cool music. (laughs) That's the message. You know, it's not an ideological one or a political one. It's just here's some cool music. And that is something that I've always uh, loved and will continue to share with people and try and get more people 
to know about it. And that is that. So let's listen to some more. All right. So here is a track from an artist called R Missing. That's R dot missing. Uh, it is brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $88 Club. There's Robert D. Bishop Collector and Chris Dance. You guys are uh, very, very, very awesome people. And so is Mike Shima with the 82. You guys are the, the trifecta of uh, awesome folks. And now let's listen to this track. This is Are Missing with Unsummering. Oh yes, 
And that was Unsummering by R. Missing. It's kind of got like a sort of new wave post-rock kind of vibe. I like that. And that was uh, brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. Uh, there's Jacob Wick with the 4488. Oh, I should say my dad was cleaning up or at least sort of renovating the basement space where my Lego table is, painting the walls and doing all this sorts of stuff. And uh, I always say this when I bring up Jacob Wick, because one time he was uh, kind enough and sent me a big box of Lego that got added to the collection, and I really want to build a castle. And I've been collecting all the Lego, but then they started renovating the room, and it was all full of fucking dust and uh, drywall and powder everywhere and sawdust and shit and so I couldn't do anything over Christmas but um, I think it's cleaned up now so next time I visit home I'm going to start my castle and build the fucking Boba Fett ship I got for Christmas because I got a Slave 1 Lego so that has to be built as well and also thank you to City Hunter with the 42 and what else I got some more messages from people I got a message from one of my PayPal's uh, Digital Dreams just sending a nice positive message over the holidays he supports the show and he says thank you andy you're the best i am very glad that you present this kind of music and humor i have bought many albums just because i've heard it on your show so big thanks to you because you do what you do paypal supporter here keep the cool well thanks digital dreams and thanks for supporting the show in fact let's quickly just thank the paypals so we got a new paypal uh his name is ross bruce thanks ross for supporting beyond synth you are a cool guy and of course the king of the paypals jimpy happy new year buddy then there's rob dyson another cool guy and Timothy Warwick, Anselmo Incorporated, Jimmy Groon, The Rosconian, and Jersey. And uh, a few PayPals sent some lovely gifts over the holidays. So I think I will, I'll read those after we listen to another song because they all sent me some messages and I think it would be nice to read them. We're trying to spread some positivity today. And did I tell you that Ollie Ride is on this show? And we talk for a long time so I hope you like uh, Ollie Ride because it's a big long chat I mean I haven't edited the show yet so I don't know how long it is but if you're looking at the show going like this thing's fucking like three hours and ten minutes or whatever it is just know that like two and a half hours of that is me uh, chatting with Ollie and we play a lot of music and talk about a lot of stuff so let's listen to some more tunes this is Alpha Rhythm and it is brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the 2666 Club there's Lucas Ceballos and Hugh and in the $25 club, Clint Dowling, new supporter, Anthony. Oh, we got another new $25 donor, A Star Apart. No, we don't. You've changed your name, you fool. <laughs> well, A Star Apart. You tricked me there. See, look at that. It's very easy to trick me. Look, let's listen to this music, and then we'll keep talking. This is Alpha Rhythm with Break the Frame.
And that was Break the Frame by Alpha Rhythm. I always like those kind of dancey, techno-y tracks. They make me happy. So look, Gus Velichek, who is normally a Beyond Synth Patreon supporter, sent a, a lovely gift over Christmas, and this is what he had to say. Happy Christmas, Andy. Thanks very much for all your hard work this year. I really love and appreciate Beyond Synth, and it often helped me get through a tough day in 2019. Thanks for that, man. Your show is very special, and I hope you will have even more success with it in 2020. Hope you will be able to get some rest in the upcoming days and spend some quality time with your family. Meanwhile, Please treat yourself to something that makes you happy and enjoy a well-deserved break. Gus. Well, thank you, Gus. I did have a good Christmas. And although I haven't been editing Beyond Synth for the past few weeks, I have been editing videos. And you can catch some of those on the YouTube channel. So I'm always doing something. I'm going to start doing more reviews of more current TV and movies and stuff like that. And that's going to be on the Beyond Synth YouTube channel. So you can check out my Witcher review. I did the first half of season one, and I'm going to do the second half uh, probably next week. And you can also see a bunch of videos of me and Protector 101 playing old RoboCop games. There's still two more of those that have to be released, and there's a bunch more videos coming out. So don't forget to like and subscribe to the Beyond Synth YouTube channel. And also to the Beyond Synth Twitch, because that's where we're going to be streaming the live shows. But I might also stream them on Facebook and YouTube as well. And I got another lovely gift from Rohate. I know you told me how to say your last name, and I fucking forgot. (laughs) I apologize. Ganger. It says Rohate Ganger, right? I think that's what it is. Um, Anyway, look, you sent me a lovely gift, so thank you very much. And he said, from Yule Thompson with love. And for those of you who don't know Yule Thompson, he's the Swedish Santa Claus, right? Yule Thompson. And I just... (laughs) When I discovered that, and that was back in season one, fucking... (laughs) Their Santa Claus is called Yule Thompson. (laughs) Fucking Thompson. So thank you very much, and I hope you had a lovely holiday, Rohate. You are a cool guy, and thank you for supporting the show. And I got a lovely gift from Jacob Doring, and he says, You're doing such a great show, and now it's time to pay a little bit for all this awesome music and your funny way to present it. Greetings from Germany. Well, greetings to you, Jacob, and thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, It means a lot to me. Um, It was a nice little holiday there, receiving these nice letters and and gifts from people uh, who appreciate the show, and I'm glad you do. Uh, My goal is to make more episodes this season than I have ever made in a season. Why did I just say that out loud? (laughs) I shouldn't have done that. Considering last year we made like 70 episodes, including the high fives. I shouldn't have said that out loud. Anyway, let's listen to some more music. This is a track from Essinger, and it's brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. In the $25 Club, Restless Nights, Honeybeard, Tim Carlton, and Johnny Five. Happy New Year, everybody. And this is Essinger with the track After Dark.
That was After Dark by Essinger. I've always liked that kind of vocal effect. I think it sounds cool. And uh, that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. In the $25 Club, there's Pattern Shift, Kempson, Martin Larby, and Gregorio Franco. You guys are awesome. So I picked up uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and I've just been playing through that. You know, I tried to stream it on Twitch. I don't know. Maybe if some of you out there watch Twitch, let me know if this is like some sort of Twitch faux pas. But 
when a game is complex, you know, like a modern game where there's characters constantly talking to you and giving you instructions and stuff, I can't really pay attention to the chat. Like, I just need to focus on the game. And I don't know, is that like bad form to just play a game and not really engage too much? Because, you know, with new games, there's always a thing. You run into a room and then some character gives you a new ability or says, you know, don't forget to hold L and press triangle to open boxes or whatever. And if you don't hear the instruction... Then you just end up running in circles around the room for like an hour. So, yeah, I was playing that, and then I felt like I couldn't really pay too close attention to the people who were actually watching. And then what else? Over Christmas, I finally watched... What did I see? I saw Joker. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I found that film really funny. Like, we... I was watching it with an old buddy of mine, and we were laughing our heads off. And that fucking ending, uh, like, no spoilers, but that... The ending just goes fucking crazy and you just don't expect it because the rest of the movie is pretty chill. Well, I mean, pretty chill. It gets really extreme and then there's (laughs) this really unnecessary payoff that I was almost cheering at because of how stupid it was. (laughs) It makes me laugh just thinking about it. And uh, I thought Joker looked really good. This might be an unpopular opinion because I know that people loved that movie. I think personally it was a little overrated i think a lot of people were really talking about it like it was this like masterpiece i think it was good i think he was good but i think honestly the the standout thing for me from joker was the cinematography it just the the colors the lighting the the lenses you know just like the depth of field and like the things that are in focus and kind of blurry and just the way i don't know the way it all looked it had a real genuine like it felt old and uh and the set direction and stuff was like pretty crazy too in fact both those movies were really impressive for their period piece art direction joker really felt like oh shit like this is like gritty you know like early 80s Everything from, you know, the sets to the wardrobe and all that. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, those scenes where they're driving around and you can see, like, the storefronts and the things in the background. And, I mean, I'm sure they use CGI to help embellish stuff, but it felt pretty real. I think that's the nice thing about both of those movies was that they felt real. Even though I know there had to be a lot of special effects to really sell the the period piece aspect of them, I didn't notice it. You know, it's not like when you you know when you watch like The Irishman and I thought the de aging looked fine. It's just that you know it's there. And with this, I'm sure there was a lot of special effects work going on in these movies, and I didn't uh, see it. So, anyway, uh, I, I recommend them both, but I. Th- think i had a lot more fun with once upon a time in hollywood um but maybe that's because it's just a more fun movie and maybe that comparison isn't fair anyways let's listen to some more music this is sakunera sakunera s-a-k-u-n-e-r-a sakunera i'm gonna say sakunera if it's sakunera i apologize anyways this is from the shallows of my mind album it is brought to you by my awesome patreon supporters in the 25 dollar club there's blake peterson and with the 2049 ashley keegan and with the 20 it's andy's laugh you guys are all awesome and now let's listen to this this is sakunera with the track once knew you
And that was Once Knew You, K-N-E-W, Once Knew You by Sakunera from the album The Shallows of My Mind. And that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. Uh, With the 1999, it's Alex Selickson. And the 1985, Rachel Buchelman. And with the 1984, it's Murat. You guys are all awesome. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to everybody, man. So look, we got one more track to listen to, and then we will go chat with Ollie Ride. So, you know, uh, you know, the past two years, a lot of the podcast has been filled with me complaining about The Last Jedi. I've decided in 2020, when keeping current with more modern media, I'm also going to uh, take Kylo Ren's advice and let the past die, which is much easier now that I've seen Rise of Sky Walker, and um, it was uh, dumb. So, there's... <laughs> Here's the deal. We're going to put this whole thing to rest. I think that since Rise of Skywalker was such a soulless movie, it's going to make it so much easier for me to just write off this whole trilogy. And I'm not going to dwell on this. You know, you guys, you know I don't love uh, Last Jedi. That's not an original thought. Uh, Lots of people out there feel the same way. So there's really nothing they could have done because what that movie did just made me not care about Star Wars anymore. And so no amount of terrible fan service would bring me back. That being said, my problem with Rise of Skywalker wasn't the fan service. It's that it is a fucking mess. It's like... 10, 15-minute movies sandwiched together. I just felt nothing. You know, I watched the movie and I had no emotional investment in anything that was going on. And so they did a whole bunch of stuff that (laughs) would normally bother me. (laughs) Like some stuff with the Force and shit where I'm like, did they just teleport something with the Force? Like, it's... (laughs) <laughs> and the fucking force healed back to life. And they just, there's some things in that movie that are fucking dumb. And I was so detached that I didn't even care. Like, I just was just watching, like, oh, yeah, there's the Emperor whose electricity is apparently powerful enough to fucking make ships fall out of the sky, but can still be deflected by a lightsaber. And I'm just like, okay, sure. Oh, there he goes. You know, like it was, oh my God. So uh, we're done with it. And basically the future of Star Wars rests with The Mandalorian, which is a good show, which I really did enjoy. And I'm actually going to do a video on the YouTube channel. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be done. It's probably going to be like a few months. But uh, Mike and Florence are going to join me and we're going to do sort of a recap and review of The Mandalorian Season 1 and talk about why we like Star Wars and also a review of Mandalorian. And uh, that should be fun. Again, I'm sorry if I'm offending you with my Star Wars chat. If you Look, if you liked it, great. Fucking good for you, man. Even with my feelings about Last Jedi, if people like it, I'm happy for them. I really am. Although, I feel like if people like Last Jedi, they're still going to be upset with this movie. (laughs) Especially because (laughs) of the things it kind of reverses. But then, it's interesting because now I'm seeing people know what it feels like. But I don't know that they're ready to admit 
that that is what's happening. Especially with the character. Like, I saw a lot of tweets around when the movie came out. People upset that, you know, the character of Rose was sidelined. And it's like, oh, I can't believe they're so disrespectful to this amazing character. And, you know, they're not treating her well in this new movie and all this stuff. And I'm like, yep. Feels great, doesn't it, when they take a character you love and fuck with them? It's a great feeling, isn't it? Maybe we can all bond over that in the future. And so next time someone sits there and complains about what they did to Luke or Han or Leia or any of the classic characters and how they were mistreated, now we've got the new fans who have witnessed their own favorite characters mistreated. And we can all hug each other and take comfort in the fact that we were all fucked over. Now, let's listen to this song. This is from... uh, (laughs) Here's a track by Eli Raybon. Or do you say Rabin? Eli Raybon, I'm going to say, from his album Super Toys. And this is brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. In the $15 Club, there's Six Mill, Hampus ML, Kenjuru, and Chatterack. And of course, Mads Baron Christensen, Prophet of Jupiter, and we will never forget the immortal Chris Salia Lane. And look, we're going to listen to this song. I know at first you're going to be like, What is this song, Andy? Because it kind of has sort of like an indie pop kind of vibe. Um, But the chorus I found very catchy. And that's when all the synths kind of come in. And I really like uh, this song a lot. So this is Eli Raybon with Battery Brain. I've got pride in my
And that was Battery Brain by Eli Raybon from the album Super Toys. And uh, I just love that chorus. It's just so damn catchy. It gets uh, stuck in my head. And I know it sort of has more of like an indie vibe, especially with his singing style. But uh, you know me, man. Whenever fucking synthesizers are concerned, uh, I just perk up like a dog that perks up. Metaphors are not my strong suit. Uh, listen to me, man. Thanks for listening to the show. Happy New Year to you all. And now let's go to my conversation with Ollie Ride. <laughs> there make sure that is working hit record here make sure that is going all right oh hello for some reason i'm drinking something that's got like milk in it which is not good to uh do when you're recording your voice but whatever exactly but never mind you wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> i wouldn't know anything about the singing yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right <Okay>. well <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love these conversations. All oh, right, okay, I'll compose myself. All right, well, we're here today with Ollie Ride. Hi, Ollie. Hey, Andy, how's it going? It's going good. So, 
I sort of met you kind of backwards in a way because a lot of people I've had on the show, yeah. I've met first by doing the show with them, you know, like doing an audio conversation uh-huh. and then meeting them later when they end up like touring or doing a show. For you, I've technically met you twice now and we sort of hung out when you've performed in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then I realized when we were about to do the show that like, I don't actually know anything about you. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people do. I am a mystery. Yeah, well, you're a fun guy. Like, I mean, I, I enjoy spending time uh, when you're around. I think you got a, a good disposition and a good uh, sense of humor. Like, I had fun. Like, I sort of had like an instant kind of like, oh, I like hanging out with Ollie. Like, he's cool. That feeling is reciprocated. It's good. I like hanging out with you too, dude. I don't think we've had enough time to hang out with one another. So when, when I always pass through town, it's usually fleeting, which is... um. It's all my fault. For some reason, even though you and I had never... The first time you came in with the, with FM84, mm-hmm. it was weird because it was sort of like we kind of had met, but we really didn't. But we sort of got along really quickly. So like when you finally like meet up, it's like you sort of fast track a sort of... I don't want to be presumptuous to say a friendship, but I mean like you sort of fast track this sort of connection where the second you see the person, it's like, all right, we're, we're pretty much probably on the same page for a lot of things. So let's just get right into it instead of, uh, you know, beating around the bush with small talk and stuff i've got a good sense for people as well i think i think people tend to have a, a preconceived idea towards me perhaps um but I, I think a lot of people that tend to be like that in social situations as well we, we tend to sort of judge a book by its cover and uh in this particular instance you know you took me as i am and likewise and uh, yeah we just really hit it off and um long may it continue so let's hope this interview goes fucking well so. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, though, judging books by their cover is a really accurate way to judge books. That is true. It's my favorite. Unless it's um, Braille, in which case <laughs> it's harder to judge the book uh, unless you understand it. And that is just a rabbit hole that I don't really want to go down. I'm just going to take myself out of that right now. And uh, moving on. Can you imagine <laughs> how hard it is to actually read Braille? I don't really sort of plague myself with that kind of worry. <laughs> In fact, maybe plagues to to burden. Burden. Why did I use plague? That's such a um, extreme word to use. Um, burden myself. Should there come a time where I need to learn how to uh, decipher Braille, then I guess uh, Braille readers will be having the last laugh. <laughs> Christ, what we did. That's what we're going to do for the next hour, my friend. Is uh... <laughs> So, I thought it would be fun, all right, mm-hmm. to find out a bit about Ollie, you see, because I've actually listened, I don't often do this, but I actually listened to some of the other shows that you were on. All oh, right, okay. In, so I don't end up repeating anything, you know? I like to, I mean, obviously... <laughs> When you end up on this show and end up talking about reading Braille, it's like there's no worry of me repeating because other people just yeah. normally ask normal questions. <laughs> yeah. You might get a different answer each time, though. I might just get creative with the truth and yeah. <laughs> pretend to be like some sort of oil baron. Dude, I wish you were an oil baron. I've been looking for one for years. I've literally been saying that on the show in terms of getting funding. Like, I've, I've, I've maintained this whole time. Like, I can be bought very easily, and I'm always looking for an oil baron. Mm. If you can be bought by anyone, it has to be the worst. So it has to be oil. It has to be an oil baron guy who makes me promote like Exxon on the show. And I will gladly do it if it means actually getting paid. Mm, mm. So if you are an oil baron, um, I want some of that sweet cash. I appreciate your candor and honesty there. Um, alas, I'm not an oil baron. Um, but I could pretend to be and grow a pencil mustache. <laughs> 
I just have this image of this guy twizzling, this sort of David Niven-like character, just twiddling a pencil moustache and perhaps has got a, a fez on and um, a cape. <laughs> you could pull that look off. <laughs> I reckon so. Maybe that's in my sort of later years if I get there. Look at you, eh? Fucking morbid. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be doing this in a wheelchair, don't you worry. <laughs> So, how about this? Why don't you explain briefly who you are? Where do you come from? Where do, where do I come from? Who do you work for? <laughs> what are your affiliations? <laughs> well, I am an English singer-songwriter. I was born in the north of England, in East Yorkshire. I moved out of mum and dad's when I was 17, 18. I moved to the south of England in Brighton, which is where I've uh, predominantly resided for the last 10 years, on and off. Yeah, I, I started my career, uh, if you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're done. No, I can, I can sort of digress and I, I can sort of um, wax lyrical for, for ages, but I can give you the long and short. Uh, I, I was a music student. I was studying a degree in uh, professional musicianship, which sounds absolutely useless. And kids, if you are considering of going to music college, I, I'd really... Um, prioritize what it is that you actually want to do not to knock it but anyway um i was put forward for a um that, well the college would sometimes hold auditions open auditions for various uh, outfits that would come in for major labels predominantly so we'd have warner brothers in there emi parlophone you name it universal they'd come in and they would go and seek talent and um i suppose it's another way of cutting to the chase and, and finding like the cream of the crop or ostensibly the cream of the crop when it comes to new musicians or session players whatever so i was put forward for for a, a band audition i unbeknownst to me it was for a girl band audition it was, it was for a girl band and i had shoulder length hair back then obviously sang really high and I went, I trundled along to this audition and I went in, not knowing that it was for a girl band. And they must have thought that I was being deadly serious because I, and I used, used to wear black fingernail polish as well. <laughs> I was one of those guys. And um, <laughs> I looked like some sort of bizarre Robert Smith meets Tim Curry incarnation vicariously wanting to, um, like, through a sort of Duran Duran sort of screen, I guess. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did this... <laughs> Please expand this metaphor. <laughs> Not enough references. It, it, it was really tenuous. Mm. Anyway, I looked like some sort of gargoyle monster, and um, I caught on to the idea when I saw this queue of girls amassing outside the door who were auditioning for this band, because it was for a girl band. And the, the actual people who were running the audition, you had the CEOs of all the majors in the UK there, and they must have thought of being deadly serious. But when the penny dropped, I can't believe I had the balls to do this, but I just said, look, I don't want to be here. I just want to play you my music. It sounds really chintzy, but that's what I did. Mm. I thought I've got nothing to lose here. And I'd only cut two songs at the time, so I was really chancing it. And anyway, the, the, the college administrators who were, who were um, organising the whole thing said, no, you've got to leave. The guy who'd be my first manager who worked for EMI Records at the time, he said, no, let him stay. I played the tracks, uh, the piano, I left him a CD. And then I, I left and I didn't expect anything more to come from it. But I got a call three months later from the college and they said, uh, oh, do you remember so-and-so, this chap, he's, uh, he's interested in, in talking to you. And so they passed on my details and I spoke to this guy. And anyway, he, he turned out to be my my manager. He said, I really want to work with you. 
I think that we can get you signed. Um, I'd like to start representing you as a songwriter. And, uh, you know, I couldn't believe my luck because I'd only been at college for a year and I had a huge dissertation due at the end of it, which I had no fucking interest in completing. I just wanted to be a songwriter. And so um, I began to sort of create more material. He put me in various sessions and within two months, there was a bidding war with the major labels and I, I signed to Atlantic Records, the famous home of Led Zeppelin and Foreigner and many other wonderful people. Mm. But then I was sort of conflicted because here I was halfway through my degree and I also wanted to be uh, unashamedly a rock star mm. or a songwriter or just a professional musician earn myself from um, creating music and so my family was very excited because it's like holy shit you know Ollie's uh, fanciful dreams may actually become reality because there's you know there's a deal on the table of something tangible and i think a lot of uh, young musicians can probably attest to this as well but uh, when you have to have the inevitable crunch talk with mum and dad mm. <laughs> you've been doing music for a while and it isn't going anywhere it's funny you've got the proper line of work and it was it was getting to that sort of point even though i was in college and then i remember going in to meet the the head of Atlantic in the UK at the time, a chap called Max Lusada, really nice guy. And he said, well, Rod Stewart never had a degree, a professional <laughs> degree in um, professional musicianship, so then why the fuck do you need one? And then with that, I, I sort of gracefully bowed out of college and uh, I signed this deal with Atlantic and I was on my uh, merry way by... Um, 1819. I was thrown in right at the deep end and started writing for um, for artists. And I, th I think actually the first major session that I had was with Meatloaf. I was flown out to California. <laughs> <laughs> no word of a lie. <laughs> Do you want me to keep going? I can keep going. <laughs> well, how about this? Let's actually listen to some music and then we'll we'll keep talking. So uh, this is an awesome one. Obviously, this is from your your debut solo album. Mm -hmm. it, wait, it is right. I I mean I <laughs> I understand there is like this sort of Ollie Ride has a past that I don't know fully about. So is there like another album floating out there where you're like some like pop rock singer in some other genre? Like does that exist? I think there are various sort of singles that are out there, and I'd, I'd recorded a few albums for other people, and there was I was in the process of writing a more of like a rock and roll album seven years ago it just ended up in a drawer so this is actually the first official debut solo record from the factory floor up you know it's it's homegrown so yeah this is this is the first one perfect well then let's listen to this awesome song this is back to life by ollie ride Bring me back to life 
And that was Ollie Ride with the track Back to Life. And I'm here right now with Ollie. We're learning about his past. <laughs> his sordid past. His checkered past. <laughs> so you moved, uh, did you live in a small house? You moved away at 17. That's like a young age to move away, isn't it? Yeah. Kicked out, moved away. No, moved away. I wanted to move down south. I wanted to move down to Brighton because my elder brother was there. He was already already achieved a certain level of success because he was he was already signed to Columbia. He was in quite a well known band over here and part of a movie. And I just, you know, I wanted to walk in my brother's footsteps because I he got me into music in the first place. So I just wanted to sort of try and remain by his side. And so that was the the initial. Um, catalyst that drove me down there wait who is your brother my brother charlie a very talented guitarist he, he doesn't do music anymore but uh, he, he was in a movie probably about 10 years ago now on paramount it's called angus thongs and perfect snogging <laughs> so a very t- um, no word of a lie it was a very typical british uh, novel title it was it was part of a, a series of books for young girls i guess teenagers whatever and there was a band in this book and uh Anyway, Paramount ended up making a movie. They went and recruited musicians, and my brother got the part of the guitarist, and then they signed to Columbia, and it turned into, like, a proper touring act. So they recorded at Abbey Road, and they did UK tours and so on and so forth. So, yeah, he, he was kind of the inspiration to take the leap and move down to Brighton, and uh, and that was kind of like the creative bedrock of the, of the UK as well. They call it, like, Camden-by-the-Sea. It's essentially an arts, a hub of artists and creatives and the weird and the wonderful and anything goes and you can lose your, your inhibitions there and you can, honestly, you can be whoever you want to be and there's no sort of prejudice or judgment and um, it's a very contrasting atmosphere to what it was like 10 years ago, especially in the north of England. Mm-hmm. I think we've actually come on leaps and bounds during that time. No word of a lie. What's the uh, what's the age difference between you and your brother? Uh, two years. Okay. Two okay. years. 
yeah so so we you know we used to fight like cat and dog when we were younger but um you know we're closer than ever now he, he introduced me to rock and roll that and my father's record collection and um that's how i ended up down south and I was a lot closer to London. And fortunately, by the time I, I had got signed, it meant that I could, you know, Brighton's only an hour, hour away from London on the train, if only. So most of my sessions took place in, in London. And it was easy to get to the airport to go to LA and, uh, and work uh, over there as well. So um, so if you had stayed in school, what would your dissertation have been about? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> this is... <laughs> It's just so uninspiring and just the a disenfranchised mind who sort of designed this title. But it was when, when I was at college, it was around the time of the recession, uh, the last major recession. Mm. OK, and so we had to sort of tenuously. How can I put it? I, off the top of my head, it was it was analyzing the the effects that um, the economic downturn has had on uh, various aspects of the music industry. And I had to make it relatable within context of, of an experience that I'd had. So before I'd even become a songwriter, you know, I'd done what everyone else done. Uh, you know, I was in wedding bands and so on and so forth. I'm trying to remember the exact title, but it was like, it was something along the lines of how, how um, I don't know, session musicians or... Uh, hired wedding bands or whatever have been how their business has been affected all of the knock-on effects and the, the the financial repercussions of the economic downturn and relating to demand and, and all that sort of stuff would that have been a title i've never written a dissertation do they always have like those wacky titles where it's like <laughs> the effects of economic downturn and the ripple effect on the budgets of wedding planners when preparing for hiring wedding band artists and the effects on session musicians <laughs> It's banal doggerel, isn't it? And just totally uninspiring. But the tank was empty by that stage. I'd already checked out, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I once I knew that I was going to be picked up, I was just kind of like, fuck this. I'm out of here. Th those were in the days of nice advances for development deals and so on and so forth so it, it was enough to sort of live off and um, start a new chapter in my life so um, that's uh, I was fucking lucky there was some poor sods there which had to actually follow through with that nonsense and um, I sound really cynical when it when it when, it, when, it, when talking about it but I viewed it as buying time it was kind of like a safety net to really get my shit together well I like I have a similar well I don't but I mean like I went to sort of a film school it was more of a college I went to sort of this school and it, when I say college I don't know because I think that means something different uh, to Americans and maybe British people but essentially like university in Canada is like sort of the higher level yeah. and college is kind of more of the sort of extension of high school. No, I understand. We have, have those sort of uh, institutions in the United Kingdom. Yes, because I, I think in I think in the States, they sort of use it interchangeably. Like, they'll say college and university like it's the same thing. And then I guess community college is a different... But here, yeah. there's sort of an understanding that university is like the higher academic kind of stuff and college is like for learning trades and whatever. So yeah. I went to like this film school. It was more kind of like hands-on stuff, which was fine. But since it was a college, they also required that we take some of these sort of like basic education classes so it's like every semester I had to take like a business writing course or something mm -hmm. and I, f I hated it so much because it didn't relate and they didn't try to make it relate you know, it wasn't as if it was part of the film school curriculum where they're like, learn business writing in order to write a film proposal or something, you know, something where it relates to your subject. It's just an utter fiction that some poor sod in a back room somewhere has to 
cultivate in order for it to be deemed a legitimate yes. qualification at the end of it. There's certain things that you have to adhere to. Yet, as you say, it bears no relation on um, generally what you actually want to do. But that's life, isn't it? There's stuff that we have to do in order to um, acquire the skills or the opportunities to get somewhere else. But when it comes to a creator standpoint, I, I don't know. I think I think it's more a case of, um, obviously, you've got to work bloody hard, um, but it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That is exactly what college was for me it was like it was more so the people i met while i was there that led to some of my first like employment things like after i left and it had really nothing to do with how good i was at the stuff it was just sort of like well i'm a pleasant guy and people like if they liked me they're like hey i got there's a job and like even if i wasn't qualified they'd be like you know you, you'll figure it out in like a day or two i'm like okay yeah you know what i mean it, it had nothing to do with what i was learning and you know, the joke is a lot of the stuff I learned while I was there is like antiquated now anyways. It's like the technology. Oh. It's like we were using weird old computer software to like video edit for like the first year. And I remember getting so upset. I'm like, why are we fucking learning this fucking program? Like Media 100. No one uses this. Like, I don't know what this is. And then I got busted for plagiarism. Anyway, look, we should um, <laughs> listen to uh, another track and then we'll uh, keep talking. So this was a nice sure. little, short little one from the album. It's even got interlude in brackets, but I like it because it sounds nice. And so here is uh, Hold On by Ali Ride.
And that was Ollie Ride with the track Hold On and Brackets Interlude. And I am here. <laughs> I like how you have to specify that. I mean, but it's my fault. I'm just highlighting it. I mean, some people are like, oh, I love that song, but it's too short. And it's like, well, it's just a little bit of respite because the previous track sort of designed to melt your face. And it's all about having light and shade, really. So um, <sighs> it's all about having shade. <laughs> I don't know why I just tried to justify it there. <laughs> you can call it whatever you like. Well, I will call it Hold On in Brackets Interlude by Ollie Ride. <laughs> and I'm here right now with Ollie Ride, and we're talking about Ollie Ride. Today is all about Ollie Ride. And uh, so, we've got part of the story here. You went to audition for a girl band. You had the audacity to look these people in the eye and say, I'm not here for this girl band nonsense. And instead of saying, get the fuck out of here, the guy was like, hey, I want to hear this kid. Yeah. Uh, let's let's see what this kid can do. <laughs> it was exactly... And so you get signed. You go to the States. So now we're on chapter two here of, of the Ollie story. So you've traveled Ooh. to... See, this is where, when I've heard you talk on other places or in interviews, this is where the story sort of begins and it it always it, it was always this part where I'm like what the fuck's he doing in the states like I never knew the beginning part of the story it's always <laughs> I just materialized there or yeah no because it always starts with that part of the story and I'm like wait a second like he, he didn't get that accent in LA so <laughs> I bought it yeah <laughs> I took a class <laughs> everyone seems to be doing right you took the fucking film editing class and i took the british accent class because <laughs> you have uh, you've got like the proper british accent right what's the name of yours tell the people <laughs> i don't know pr- probably people just think i'm i'm a toffee nosed brit i don't know it's uh, it's more of a southern accent my favorite part yeah it's my favorite part about england is because i'm from canada so the country is gigantic and yet in england you can fit like 40 Englands into my province and yet somehow within England there are all these regions with different accents. Where I'm from in the north of England people be most familiar because of Game of Thrones but Jon Snow winter's coming. Yeah. It's just a different it's just a different I've got to be careful here I don't I, I, I don't want to um, state that I'm in favor of any particular accent but I, well, um, no, but yeah, if, I, I if I was to say because the only impression I do is if I am going like what the fuck are you doing you can't but that's from a different place. Yeah, that is from a different place. <laughs> Altogether. From a different fucking planet. What are you doing, fucking dad? That's kind of uh, like Cockney, very aggressive. Cockney slash Essex. Uh, because I was down south for so long, I, I guess it just... I mean, I never had a particularly strong northern accent. It comes out occasionally if I get cross, but that takes a lot of doing. Ooh, now this is a challenge. Well, no, I think all you got to do is read some fucking uh, asshole's opinion on YouTube and that... (laughs) (laughs) That usually does the trick. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You've heard it here first, folks. No, I don't care. But I've I've got more of a southern accent, I'd say. Because when I grew up, like, I I watched a lot of Doctor Who, Mm. and in the old days, it was all... um, was it called RP, right? Received pronunciation on all the British TV shows. And so everyone talked in that show in a certain way. We like this. (laughs) Yeah. And and whenever, yeah. And whenever it was, uh, you know, like characters could come in and talk with sort of wacky different accents, you know, but it was often like, even without being in England, I could always tell like, okay, like whenever someone shows up with a Welsh accent, they're kind of a silly character, (laughs) stuff like that. Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I think it's how things were uh, represented back then. There was a, a distorted um, view, perhaps. Usually the doctor had received pronunciation and you know, a very intelligent guy. Or We've got to view it contextually because back then particularly at the heyday, oh, was it 60s, 70s? Just entertainment shows in the UK. It was quite bleak after the Second World War. And so I think characters like that derived from figures that had been put across in the public, uh, they were deemed to have intelligence. If you're a, a lieutenant, if you're a doctor, you've been to university, so on and so forth. I think that was perhaps what they were gleaning there, but it was just a characterised version of it. So I, uh, maybe that's just why it, it, it stuck. But those accents still exist, but I think just the accent that I have seemed to have adopted is just it's, it's not really designed it's just natural that's the word yeah so it was sort of designed it's like that like newscasters would be like because I, I always um, whenever we listen to the radio and there'd be like the British like whenever people would come from the BBC mm-hmm. and they would have this way because I, I was grow, growing up in like the 90s so I think a lot of stuff about uh, Rwanda was always in the thing and it was always with these BBC yes. correspondents so it's like and the genocide in Rwanda BBC radio news <laughs> yes that's exactly right still exists yeah <laughs> Friday at 9 on BBC One. <laughs> BBC News. Extreme measures with Trevor Eve. <laughs> <laughs> but look, enough about this yeah, gibberish. Okay. You're in LA. Yes. Yeah. Even though these people have hired you, they've sort of hired you to be like a songwriter to work with other artists. Like my, my question is, is that the deal that you signed or was there some sort of promise? Like, look, you come down here and write songs and eventually we'll get to you. It wasn't sort of um, as shady as that, I would say. It was, I was signed as an artist, but it just so happened that uh, I could songwrite as well. It's funny that artists who can songwrite. Um <laughs> Crikey. Yeah, so I, I was signed as, as an artist, but I, I needed to um, hone my my chops as well because I just, I literally just started. I got signed off the back of, what was it, three or four songs? Nuts. And I'd never written songs before that. So I was kind of flying blind and absolutely mesmerized but terrified that, holy crap, I'm, you know, walking into a record company. If you've ever done it before, it can be quite intimidating when you see huge, but he, billboard posters of Robert Plant up there or Beyonce or whoever these um, people titans <laughs> yeah titans <laughs> people <laughs> uh, by the word titan it sort of conveys more of an impressive um, character but, uh, See, I'm, I'm just intimidated by people so that's enough for me okay. <laughs> so yeah I, I, uh, I, was, I was thrown in at the deep end and they um, I think it was actually within the first three weeks of me being signed it said well I was working with different producers and so on and so forth both for a record of my own because that was the eventual goal but also the, the, the method was we'll, we'll get this young kid out to as many songwriting sessions as possible get his name out there you know he may or may not write a hit with somebody or for somebody and uh, we'll get a quick return on our investment it was kind of chump change when they said they suggested um I remember going into Atlantic one day and, and they said, how would you feel about going to Los Angeles? And I was like, amazing. Um, how would you feel about going to Los Angeles to write with uh, Meatloaf? And I was just like, are you... I thought Jim Steinman wrote all of his stuff. But at the time, I don't think they were working together because they had uh, an acrimonious um, disagreement. So if I, correct me, if someone can fact check this. But anyway, I, I was involved in part of a 
a group of songwriters, one of whom was uh, Justin Hawkins from The Darkness, if you remember those guys. And then we had Rob Cavallo, who produced the Dookie album, Green Day, and My Chemical Romance, The Black Parade, and, and he, he was heading up the record. And Meatloaf had this wild idea that, aside from getting brilliant songwriters that had millions of records underneath their belts, he would actually integrate you know, younger writers, new signings as more of like a exploratory exercise. He had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. It was chump change for these guys. So I flew over you know, the first day we drove up to this gated community, like so many of them in Los Angeles, near Calabasas, I think it was. And we went up to Rob Cavallo's house and uh, beautiful palatial sort of surroundings very very intimidating and uh and we were all sort of ushered into this cinema room this home cinema massive with tiered seating and, and so on and so forth and there was uh six six writers there including myself and we waited in there for about half an hour we were introduced to one another and and we were sort of briefed by rob because we're on first name terms, of course. We were, <laughs> we were briefed by Rob Cavallo um, about what the project was, what Meat's expecting, because that's what you call him, Meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the first, no word of a lie, he likes to be called Meat. And um, as long as I don't have to call him the Meat. Um, and we, he, he came in, this larger-than-life character bursting in, and gave us like this rallying speech as if we were about to go into battle. <laughs> it was kind of like this bizarre existential experience and um, both, as I say, it was both utterly terrifying and also like, Jesus Christ, I was at college a few months ago with no care. I was out with my friends at, at the pub, you know, mm. <laughs> and uh, being away from home for the first time. And now I've sort of found myself waist deep and um in meat in meat and it was just the most wonderful surreal experience yeah all right well before we get uh uh, too carried away here i want to listen to one of the tracks so obviously you're here today to promote well you're here today because you're a good guy and and friend right is that (laughs) and i just give my time willingly to you but also uh it's because you've put out this deluxe edition of your solo album so Mm. uh today we're going to be listening to tracks from you know the original release and we're also going to listen to some of these kind of reworked tracks so it's kind of a fun sort of album right because you have all these sort of artists on here who are sort of reworking or you know re-envisioning tracks absolutely i think i think the idea sort of stemmed from um well because the, the album itself sort of takes a little bit of departure out of the the synth wave world and it's it's more of like a 80s rock pop electronic album so i wanted to recruit my friends and uh, and producers that i'm huge fans of to um sort of rework the tracks um to also expand the audience and, and perhaps um, introduce people to the tracks that didn't necessarily catch the album the first time around. And it's very, very interesting because I've given them total autonomy and, and free creative reign because I wanted to achieve, um, I wanted them to put their stamp on it. In, in most cases, they just worked with a vocal stem and less 
you know, they particularly wanted another element to the track. And uh, I just said, have at, have at it and uh, have fun with it. But uh, it was, it, I just think it's a good way to branch out. I, I think it, the songs really stand up as well. It's very eclectic. I've tried to go for artists that are um, very unique and they've got an unmistakable uh, style of their own. Yeah. So hopefully people enjoy it and see that their uh, the songs stand up as well because they've they've all had a lot of fun doing it and it's been really it's been kind of nice actually just handing over the reins to some of these tracks. So um, I think they've done a wonderful job. Cool, man. Well, let's uh, let's listen to this one. This is uh, the Sunglasses Kid reworking yeah. of uh, the track Overcome.
Right, and that was Overcome by Ollie Wright, and that was the Sunglasses Kid uh, remix uh, from the Deluxe Edition, and I'm here uh, with Ollie Wright. Hello, sir. So tell me about that one. Do you know what? I think when, when the Deluxe idea came to mind, that was actually the first track that was completed for the record. And I'd been a, a huge fan of Sunglasses Kid for a long, long time and, and we'd sort of met each other before at shows and I, I remember he came to the, the FM84 Brixton show and we just really hit it off. Um, and we started to, to chat more and uh, Ed was the first guy that I approached to be involved and he just knocked it out of the park straight away. In fact, everybody's knocked it out of the park but I, I just thought, this is a good decision. He's taken this track that I've, I've lived with for so long and he's turned it on his head and, and put his seal of approval on it or stamp should I say so um, yeah he's great he's a tall guy he is very tall but I suppose comparatively speaking shorter than Chewbacca <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. I am stupid occasionally. <laughs> um, before we started playing that song, we got it. We were talking about meatloaf, so I want to get back to this meatloaf story. So, mm-hmm. what exactly did you do when you were recruited to like work with meat? I did harmonies on some of the tracks, and I think the record was called Hang Cool Teddy Bear. That was the album, and uh, yeah, we ate every night together, and uh, it was a real sort of collaborative experience. But also a factory in itself. We all broke off into different rooms of this huge mansion, and uh, they set up little production suites. So you, 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 and I hadn't even fucking how to use Logic properly back then. So I was really up against it, and uh, trying to, and I was using GarageBand mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, I don't know, my my computer CPU was maxed out on it, and it was an old Mac, and uh, it was a real difficult fortnight actually um, because one you i felt quite isolated in it as well it was very collaborative but then again a lot of the time you were sort of left to your own devices and especially for somebody who was just getting involved in the business it was quite overwhelming but it was a real baptism of fire moment and uh yeah so that, that was that was probably one of the the biggest stars that i wrote for and worked with I would go back to LA quite a few times uh, subsequently, but I was writing with other artists in, in the UK, and um, eventually, when the option didn't, this is where it went a little bit sour. But when the option, I wasn't picked up on the option to continue with Atlantic, which happens, I sort of found myself now without a manager. The only advice that I was given was, you know, you, you've got to go out there and. Um, focus your material focus your craft start playing shows go and put a band together all that sort of stuff so luckily i had a bit of cash left and i decided to put a band together and uh one of the members she will know is josh daly so we met back in 2010 2011 and he was my guitarist and at the time no one was putting on shows at a lower level you know just starting out no one would sort of dress up no one would really de- deliver a performance and, and and give the audience no matter how large or small they were a, a real sense of escapism so even back then i was doing sort of the maybe even more so because <laughs> it was it was very sort of rooted in um, more of like glam rock you know i was a huge fan of roxy music and queen and still am and um and it just started to snowball i mean our, our, our second show was on national television <laughs> this fucking uh, we were booked to do this uh, 
television uh, sitcom, and we were the featured band Wait, on there. So what? Yeah. Hold on. So like, what's the what's the show? <laughs> Jesus, it's called Hollyoaks, and it's this. Um, it's a horrendous television show for uh, yeah, a sitcom for teenagers, basically. But it was very exciting at the time. Yeah, we got Record of the Day. We got featured in Q Magazine, all of the major publications in the UK. And then we were asked to open for... Uh, it was another pop band at the time. I can't remember. But it was the, our sixth show ended up being the O2 Arena in London, which is a 20,000 capacity venue. And, <laughs> dude, no word of a lie. We had no management, no agent. It had just been off word of mouth and... I don't know what it was. I was very tenacious back then. I mean, I still am, but I kind of had this um, real point to prove after coming out of the, the label situation that I have to do this. And um, my bandmates, including Josh, they all took a punt on me as well. So I, I, I sort of convinced them, made them believe and share in that belief. And it wasn't long before we found ourselves with another deal. I don't know that expression. To take a punt on. What does that mean? Take a punt, take a chance. Okay, take a chance. Eh? Yeah. Take a chance, take a chance, take a, take a chance, chance. <laughs> so we signed this other deal, this uh, independent deal. And uh, again, still in the fallout of the recession, even though this was a couple of years later, it was so hard to, to get signed at the time. So when this deal came along, I never forget going into my solicitor's office and he said, you do realize this is an intensive 360 agreement. And as you know, a 360, they, they take a portion of all revenue streams that the artists learn, publishing, live, merchandising, you name it, mm -hmm. everything. My publishing was signed at the time, or pertaining to the music that I was writing at the time, it was wrapped up in that deal. It was like a production agreement. So what was the band called? This is the band with Josh now, right? So what's this band called this was the band uh, i'm not proud of it this was called joyride and um very aptly named and uh, yeah it was over the top and and, and kind of campy but it, it kind of really resonated with people because it was fun mm. and no one else was doing stuff like that at the time well it's funny that you, uh, you when you when you were talking about la and you mentioned the darkness because i completely forgot about the darkness but i remember i loved that album when it came out you know before like synthwave scene started uh that was one of those things i was like hey it's like an 80s throwback and it was just fun and it had that cheesy video where there's like the fucking spaceships and they're all in like the tights yeah, and stuff right. yeah so I forgot there was these little pockets every, every now and again there would be a thing whenever there would be the occasional like kind of 80s throwback thing that would happen there'd be like one thing here one thing there and I remember the darkness was one of them it's weird because I've never talked about the darkness on this show before but uh, that that was yeah this but it was always this thing it didn't it didn't kickstart a movement or anything it was just this sort of yeah. here's a fun thing that reminds you of like 80s fucking glam metal and then they just sort of yeah Justin and I were, were kind of pally for a little bit and uh, when he came out out of the darkness and um, we worked together and I don't know it just always resonated with me I mean what I was doing was a little bit more poppy than the metal side but it was a lot of fun and people just saw that because everyone used to take them this was like the, the height of indie and uh, sort of shoegazing and introspection and, and, and that sort of stuff whereas we were doing the complete antithesis it was I don't want to say tribalistic but it, it, was, it was like everyone was on the same side it was meant to be inclusive. It wasn't meant to be exclusive. And I think people just saw the fact that if we weren't taking ourselves too seriously and we were seen to be having fun, then that would translate. And it did. And so that was one of the reasons why we got signed. And um, and I was part of that band for, um, oh God, four years. 
good money, getting to do what I wanted to do uh, with people that I loved, you know. And uh, we did some massive shows, massive support slots for, with artists like Jesse J and Ollie Murs, lots of pop artists in the UK. We did a lot of festivals. We even supported Electric Six, if you remember those guys. The Electric Six was another one, man. Fucking, uh... Oh, there was this ridiculous song where the video where he's like dressed up like a in that uh, explorer outfit and his groin like lights up. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Fire in the disco. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Fire, Fire in the disco. Yeah. <laughs> really, really nice guys, and we we did uh, tour with them in um, the Netherlands. The whole point was that it was a venture capitalist, and if if no one's familiar, they they can reserve a substantial amount of money. That would equate to a, a decent major record deal, and um, they finance it. Um, it can be sometimes for tax breaks, can be because they just have a, a love of music and want to, to see a uh, return on an investment other than the business, the line of work that they may be in. And uh, it just so happened to be a, a guy, a lovely guy, who worked out of Dubai and owned a... I'm just trying to remember. He owned a... Country. A company that... <laughs> he owned a company that developed the machine parts on oil rigs, I believe, where they siphon the oil from the ground. It's a very lucrative business. And anyway, we, we sort of... Virtual label was set up in place to deal with us and artists that they were taking on board. And then the infrastructure would be brought in on board. So radio plugger and digital marketing and tour management and all that sort of stuff. A load of jobs that were um, were on the payroll, of course, thousands of pounds a month, and it was ultimately unnecessary in the end because what is the main thing that resonates with people? It's the music. And if you don't have good music and if you don't have the right sounding record and if you can't get it in front of the right people, then you are just uh, burning through cash. And unfortunately, it was predominantly due to the, um, I mean, she'll rename nameless. We've subsequently patched up our differences, I think. But the A&R guy was actually the investor's brother. And it caused a massive conflict of interest. And um, I just quickly found that uh, although I was getting to, well, we were getting to tour all over the place and doing shows and making a record, it was just, it was never on our terms. And uh, I quickly found that it was, the reason why I got involved was totally um, distorted. So I'd ended up recording a, a very expensive album, which I could have done at home on my own mm -hmm. for a fraction of the cost. You know, we didn't need to go and do that, although it was a fabulous experience. But it, just the the debt racked up so quickly, and, and I'm sure I'm not the first uh, artist who's been in that situation. I certainly won't be the last, but the reason why we got signed in the first place or any artist gets signed is because the, you're seen to be a, an attractive commodity be it for your music, your live performance, whatever. Uh, unfortunately, the motives of the, this uh, A&R guy were, were not aligned with ours, and it just quickly became almost like a, an avocation for him, a, a hobby, and it, it would sort of distort the reasoning why we were doing this in the first place, and often these decisions were very costly. And, of course, tempers became frayed, and it was a, it was a, there were some immense highlights during that process, but to fast forward, it ended up in... Um, degree of litigation so um it was very difficult for me to get out of that scenario i should let the audience know that anr stands for artists and repertoire that's correct yeah the, the traditional uh, model you know for example elvis you know he, he didn't write his songs the anr guy would go out and source material uh, for the for the artist to sing and they would simply perform 
um, and that's why we call the performing artist as well. So, how do you fully describe A and R as like a definition? Like, is it sort of it's a talent scout, right? But they also try and like, do they have like a vision? Like, they look for talent, but they also try and shape that talent in a way. Like, there's some sort of creativity to it, or is it literally just about finding people? Well, I, I think it's um, you're right on those fronts. It's it's part of the division of a record label that is, um, as you say, is responsible for talent and scouting, and basically artistic and commercial development of a recording artist but it also acts as a liaison between the artist and the record label and the uh, the main responsibilities are finding the talent and of course they they want to keep their desk as well because they need to return on the investment because they they're essentially taking a punt on you Mm. and if you don't sort of garner success especially in today's environment, then you'll quickly find yourself on the scrap heap. But they're also, they're in charge of overseeing the recording process and and as well as assisting with marketing and promotion. And it just so happened that this person had very little experience in all of those um, areas. So that's where it led to lots of uh, capital being burnt through. And who's the easiest target to have a go at in any given project? Usually it's the front man because they're deemed to be um, difficult. Mm. But of course, if you really um, dissect it, the reason why perhaps the front man is difficult is because they're the most outspoken and they're standing up for, especially if they're the the key songwriter, they're standing up for their uh, creative... um, convictions or, uh, or their vision. So in a sense, like you're trying to take hold of your purpose. You wanted to be the driver in a sense of your, uh, of your artistic uh, destiny and freedom. Is that correct? That's a nice segue. Um, <laughs> but to, to fast forward when we'll get onto it later, that's sort of uh, where that song stemmed from. Well, let's listen to it. How about that? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, here it is, man. This is the driver by Ollie Wright, featuring the Night Hour in brackets. I should point that out, right? We'll talk about that after. How about that? We'll talk about that one a little bit later, yeah.
And that was The Driver by Ollie Ride featuring The Night Hour. What I find funny is like when you tell these stories, since we've met now like twice, I, I sort of thought you and I were the same age, but you're younger than me. And when you talk like this, it seems like you've had like all this stuff happen. It's like you have the experiences of an older person. Maybe that's why I got that sense from you, because I was like, oh, for sure this dude's like my age. Yeah, you're 25 though, aren't you? <laughs> well, I have the face of a 25-year-old and the body of like a 60-year-old. <laughs> 2560. Yeah. <laughs> you know that old ratio. Yeah. Cuz you are are you 30? Are you turning 30 or like I'm whatever you want to be. Now I I will be this year. So are you a late you're a late person? I'm a late person. Yeah. In many respects. I thought it was late with my voice dropping as well it would seem, but um You still got time? <laughs> if that's one of your goals? No, it's not a goal anymore. I've learned to harness where I'm at. So uh... <laughs> No, I um I will be this year. In fact, that's actually quite a common question. I can't remember who was telling me this. The one they were trying to do some research about. It might have been in another interview, but there were like common questions asked about Ollie Ride. It's how old is Ollie Ride? And when's the new Midnight album coming out? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just like, oh crikey. They've got it covered. But yes, I, uh, I'm i the twilight of my 20s, sir. So um, I don't look too bad though. Look at you. Young. I, I, I started very young, though. Not quite so young as Michael Jackson. The, the thing is, you can't help, uh, unless you're completely devoid of um, self-growth and awareness, you can't help but gather these experiences and, 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 and use it as your ar- armor going forward, because otherwise you'll just get eaten alive. And um, it's still a challenge. It's still an immense challenge. But it's important for me, if I can sort of impart any semblance of wisdom onto uh, musicians or people looking to get into the industry or who are... I mean, I'm by no means a um, an expert, but I, all I can do is uh, sort of relay my my experiences and, and what to be careful for is some things may sound familiar some things may sound totally um, obscene some people may say oh I would have never let that happen to me but it's very very easy to be take, swept along um, and things move very very quickly once the button's pressed especially in music but equally some things can take a fucking lifetime but even though you've told me these stories now and there is some lessons to learn if some sultan shows up with this fucking oil company and he needs to siphon money off of it for whatever reason, I'm going to take that money regardless of what happened to you. And I hope that I literally relocate my studio to right in front of where the oil thing is, you know, the thing that squeaks that pulls the oil out. I don't think they do that out in the Oman or whatever, but uh, I, um, well, the UAE. Look, you got to do what you got to do yeah, at man. the time. That, I can't, I can't, I've been waiting for that day. Someone to fucking buy me out just like the full-on like evil purchase where it's literally like, be Johnson, straight from the United Arab Emirates. It's, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, that's that's my dream. You keep shooting for it, my friend. I will. It was that, that's why I signed the deal at the time. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Like I say, I got to play in front of crowds of upwards of 40,000 people. And that also taught me a lot about stagecraft and um, taking my brand of... Um, uh, 
<laughs> yes, describe your brand. <laughs> taking, taking my brand of uh, performance style and putting it on a big stage. Some people really struggle to do that. Well, definitely, as far as the, the people I cover on, on this show hmm. um, and going off to see live shows and stuff, it's a lot of people who are starting out, but it's been fun just to watch over the years people gain more confidence mm-hmm. uh, in their in their stage presence and stuff like that. But obviously, with the synthwave scene and other stuff, it's like, often it's music made by like one person and so you know when they start out it's like a dude with a laptop and I don't fault them for it like I understand obviously having the semblance of a band and some some stagecraft is obviously good and it makes the show a lot more fun to watch but I don't resent people for doing the laptop thing because I'm like at least they're getting out there and they're meeting people who like their music and you know, as they grow in popularity, they do get the opportunity to sort of expand their their stage presence. Yeah, I, I think um, this isn't me being cynical towards other other artists either. I, I, I think um, I can only speak from my point of view is it's not like a conscious thing that I do either. It's just that's the way I'm geared up to perform. Yes. And like you say, it's, it's about gaining confidence, but also doing something that isn't contrived and is, is um, an extension of yourself. It's just you know, I'm quite reserved off stage, but when I, you know, I like to wear certain things to put across a, a different, um, you know, my stage persona, which is basically a little demon that occasionally comes out and um, and has fun for an hour. And so I, I, uh, well, that sounds like a euphemism, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But, yeah, but I'm going to stick with that. And, um, you know, watching other people do it, I don't begrudge people for, um, you know, just using a laptop and so on and so forth. But I, for me, there are lines between live shows, DJ sets, you know, so on and so forth. I take issue when there's a, a great deal of um, when you're actually miming the part and it's on track. I, I think if you're going to, it's either on track which is fine because we use track in FM, but there are always live elements there. You know, Josh is playing all of the guitar parts. You know, on the last tour, I mean, one guy said, you're not playing the keys. Well, yeah, I am. I'm playing the chords there. Cole is playing stuff. I'm a big advocate, big proponent of musicianship and actually being able to learn your, your craft. And uh, and that's what I did. Uh, and I was in, I've been in a variety of different situations shows where no people turned up and then 60,000 people turned up on support tours and so on and so forth where you've really got to work fucking hard to divide for people's attention so that's I think I have an advantage I don't know if it's an unfair advantage but I have let, let me call it experience where perhaps other people don't have I, what I was saying wasn't to sort of put you on the spot in your opinion of, of uh, live performance because it was leading up to a compliment saying obviously you're a very talented live performer thank you and you make me happy I mean I know there's like that drunken Instagram video where I'm telling you that but it's the truth you know there's just so much energy and charisma going on when you perform that you really do make me smile and I think there's even a few times where I kind of like laughed you know just because okay. because of the, right. the boldness and the audacity of like the performance like that that shit makes me happy you know and there isn't too many people in this particular scene that have that much sort of presence there there have been some people who have some cool live uh, like there's a lot of stuff going on often it requires money uh, you know, it requires like cool lighting rigs and, you know, visuals and stuff like this. <laughs> no, I, I, I really appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. There are some um, great performers out there. I mean, um, I mean, Dana springs to mind. But, you know, she as far as I'm aware, she's very seasoned as well. So she, she knows how to get a room going. And um, I, I think, um, again, I, I think it can so easily come across as... Um, 
contrived or forced. I think it's just a balance. I don't take myself seriously, but I take what I do seriously. And I think because this, my tongue is ever so slightly in my cheek, I know that it's grandiose. And most songs could actually be performed just stood there, but I think it wouldn't have the same impact. And I think the first time we did an FM show, bearing in mind this was fast forward a couple of years after the band, you know, Cole, we hadn't even met up until two days prior to the actual show in San Francisco at the DNA lab. So he had no idea what to expect either. And so I think I really surprised him. It's like, fucking hell, where did that come from? And I think I surprised a lot of people in the crowd. You know, there might have been a few raised eyebrows initially, because like, who's this teal suit wearing Nancy boy? But I did it with conviction. And uh, I only do what's true to me. And I feel like a song has to be performed, or those songs have to be performed in a certain way, because that's how I, I write as well. I want, it's a physical aspect and people as far as I'm concerned if people can see that the, the, the performer on stage is in control and has the confidence uh, and, and portrays that then I immediately feel far more secure and, and more likely to drop my, my wall if I'm going to see a show, if that person's in control on stage. You can't just rely on the back line or the, the production there, because what if it goes wrong? And that's what I've had many discussions about with um, Cole, and, and that's why as things develop, we make it more live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, speaking of uh, live stuff and FM84, obviously today we're focusing on the, the Ollie Ride solo stuff, but I would uh, be remiss if I didn't play one uh, FM84 track <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd throw in this one. Uh, this is Bend and Break, um, because I don't think I've actually featured this one on the show before. So uh, I thought we would take a listen to it. So this is Bend and Break by FM84.
right, and that was FM 84 with the track Bend and Break, featuring the lovely voice of Ollie Ride, and I'm here with Ollie right now. Uh, so, yeah, tell me about tell me about this one. Yeah, it uh, goes down great live, actually. It will be on the, the second record, if and when. It's a crowd-participating song, but it's unexpected as well because it starts off as this... Um, yearning sort of soulful ballad and then it just explodes into ostentatious call and response and it just went down fantastically on tour. Yeah, well that's awesome. I mean like uh, like I said, uh, I know we're focusing on the Ollie Ride stuff today but I just I had to throw in one uh, FM84 track so. Listen, I've got no complaints about you playing my music irrespective of the um, the vehicle that it's on. <laughs> It all comes back to Wally in the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to come. I had a, f- a filthy joke, I think, there, but I'm not going to say it because I'm classy. You'll not say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, uh, so before we were talking about uh, FM84 and live performing and stuff like that and sort of the problems uh, that can happen, and I was just thinking about this because for me there's like a stress involved, you know, being an audience member because one of the main tools in live performance now is laptops and... All I think about is, what if that fucking thing falls off the table? Like, I was at a small show a few months ago, and uh, this lady was bouncing around stage and stuff and just yanked the laptop, and it just slammed into the ground, and the music just stopped. And, I mean, she got it working again, but it's always it's always a tense situation. Dude, it sort of plagues my mind every time, but we've actually got built-in redundancy into the shows. So, whereas, I mean, when I first started out, we used a mini mixer and an iPod, and you pan hard left with a click, hard right with a track, and the track would come out mono, and the drummer would get the feed, Mm -hmm. and what you hear is mono out front. But an iPod, you can throw it at somebody, and it'll still work. You know, it's it's a solid state. Yeah. But when we first started playing live, when I was in the band, we did this one show at this this venue called Coco in London. Huge, opulent theatre, beautiful venue in London. It's 2,000 people and we were playing one of the Club NME nights and it was rammed. We'd sold it out and we were using um, this was prior to Solid State so it was just a standard hard drive and of course with the standard hard drive they're removing parts and it. it's like a needle like, and it would jump like on a, a vinyl player mm-hmm. if this if it's disturbed so the show starts big dramatic intro like we do the curtain raises and the drums start playing the laptop was kept on the drum riser at the back and behind the, the drummer was a huge subwoofer so when the whole band came in the track cut out the whole thing cut out we'd never encountered anything like this before and this happened three times in a row and by the third you know some of the audience was starting to get a bit rowdy but fortunately we always toured with a um, like a piano setup and because we'd rehearsed off track as well mm. i got at the piano whilst our tech fixed what the problem was and of course it was the vibrations in the computer for, or from the, the subwoofer that were just causing the hard drive to jump so, and th- if it was a solid state computer, or if we'd insulated the computer itself under like some foam or whatever, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't have happened. But because we went through that scenario, we were just armed forevermore afterwards. So, all of the tracks that we played 
you know, I could sit down at the piano and, and, and take the responsibility and, and, you know, the rest of the band would follow. And it also shows, you know, the true sort of, um, this is why I'm going on about real musicianship. So if like all of the tracks went down at an FM show, I don't know about Cole, um, but, you know, if I've got a keyboard, you know, I can still sit down and sing and play them even just as if it was like a stripped version whilst the tech can fix whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. So that's redundancy one. Redundancy two is now we run two Macs and we've got like a switcher. So if the a sign level gets sent to one Mac and if that drops out, it immediately kicks the other Mac into to gear. So the sequenced playheads. So, and that's, I think that's what Tim does from from the midnight now and uh, but again with that it's very expensive the process but uh, i just think fundamentally you should be able to play and sing these songs at the same time worst case scenario if everything sort of goes ass over tit um <laughs> it can actually be the making of you that's the thing it can be the make or break of you because if people see that you just deal with the situation professionally and you know and you sit down and and, and you, you can play it at least to sort of buy time, then I think it's it just goes to show the integrity of the musician and the professionality there. And it also gives the audience, you're never going to be on the edge of your seat. <laughs> because I've been in those situations as well where watching bands where tracks gone down and they just don't know how to fucking deal with it. And it's a horrible feeling. It's funny, though, too, like how that's the nature of live performance now, like if you're a small band. And so, like, I've been to several shows where stuff has gone wrong. And I love that, like, if the audience is there and, like, supportive of the band, it's always this thing where everyone's like, ooh, and then they all start cheering when the laptop comes back on. Yeah. You know, like everyone in the crowd, like, yeah, like it's working yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Like, Well, absolutely. But also... Yeah, there is that camaraderie, but if you're going in on, for example, uh, if you're playing to an unknown crowd, if you're like the opening act or whatever, mm. and things go wrong in front of a lot of people, then you can just be eaten alive very quickly because yeah. people don't like their time wasted, and that's how they operate. Uh, so um, I think it's different when you're the headline act, and of course, you're always going to be the prospect of technical falls. But uh, bringing it back to the genre itself, though, because we're so heavily reliant on synths, on keyboards and sequences, and everything's done in the box because that's how it's developed mm-hmm. then you are you are in a trickier position but I'd always say even in those instances just have an iPod at the fucking ready because those things will not go down or your mobile phone and just get an aux cable and have it ready but it just it just made me aware touring subsequently after experiencing those nightmare situations that I know how to deal with it at the time and I can play the songs at least to bide time whilst one of our um, crew can sort of save the day but as the shows have got bigger more involved and more production you know we, we sort of build in these redundancy uh, packages as it were mm. so uh, yeah I, I, I think um, I'm digressing now <laughs> feel free to jump in <laughs> no, I get what you're saying well look I, well actually no there's one thing I don't know how did you and Carl meet I always just hear the things like and then Colin got in touch with me and then we or, or we got in touch with each other and then I uh, started singing on uh, some FM84 tracks but I'm like what was the actual like the, the meeting part like what how okay well like I say, after um, that band project I was in wrapped up, the nasty litigation, I went back to LA and I started doing what I was doing before I was writing for people. And uh, But I, I still kept in touch with Josh. Fast forward, he had been, um, he'd been introduced by a producer, Geordie Leinertz, or Leinhardt's 
I can always struggle to pronounce this. You're the Leonards. Leonards, aka Time Cop 1983. And um, I was in a really rocky place at the time because I found myself writing for other artists again and I was getting further and further away from what I actually wanted to do finally and I didn't even know what I wanted to do anymore. But Josh, he was writing this song, he played it to me, which would eventually be Let's Talk. And uh, he suggested that I got involved and I was really reticent to do so because I've been told by every A&R guy that this is not going to work. You can't do this sort of genre of music. You're never going to make anything from it. That classic story. Mm. And this was, you know, going back 2014, 2015, Anyway, so Geordie reached out, we hit it off really well, and um, I started working with him on a track, my first sort of synthwave track, Foray Into The Genre, which was Wild Love. That went on the Reflections album in 2015. And I started, after that, I decided to familiarise myself, or should I say, educate myself more on the producers in the scene, one of whom happened to be FM84. And I bought his Los Angeles EP, and I was I had a great affinity with it. And there was this one track on it called Out of Time, and I'd already written a, a track called Out of Time, my own song, and I had the melody and it was in the same sort of key and I thought, you know what, I think this actually might work so I, even before ever meeting Cole or reaching out to him, I bought this EP and I stuck my melody song on top of his instrumental and re-edited it, or never expecting that you'd hear it, I just did it because I wanted to write a song and, and sort of become more familiar with the genre and you know, get my chops up as I do mm-hmm. anyway, fast forward and I get a message from Cole, this guy Colin Bennett, and uh, he'd heard Wild Love and he was a big fan fan of it and I was just so surprised because I was just like well I'm, I'm a huge fan of his as well he said look I'm working on an album I'd like to involve more songs I don't know why people call them vocal songs actually because a song is something that you can sing <laughs> well I think it's just it, it, the nature of when the when the synthwave scene was first starting songs didn't exist forgive me yeah well it was just <laughs> it was um there was mostly instrumental tracks and there always seemed to be this conversation of people you know on social media where there's always like it was like these two camps to a lot of people they had this very specific view of what synthwave is and it's a very very specific and narrow genre and I never when I talk about synthwave now I'm not talking about a very particular type of electronic music I'm talking about the scene the, the, the scene itself because obviously like the music you're doing when I look at like the Ollie ride uh, like the solo album Mm -hmm. i think that it has a connection to synthwave in that there are obvious inspirations to you know actual 80s uh pop and rock tracks that you're obviously inspired by and i think the synthwave scene to me now is just this place where all these artists and musicians and filmmakers or whatever like they're creating new art that has little glimpses of nostalgia it either makes you feel nostalgic or sometimes it's music that's deliberately produced in a nostalgic way and that's pretty much how I use the phrase now like I don't but anyway the the point is at the very beginning people were like no this is synthwave and anytime someone else would come in and do something slightly different they'd be like well you're fucking this is trance or whatever they're getting like all upset and people get excited about these things and ultimately they're only bloody records we've got to such a place in society where we complain about when there's art that's offered up oh I know it's a, <laughs> it's like it's a luxury problem to have to be so concerned about the specific rules of a niche genre of music but uh, look before we get carried away on this um, I think I want to hear another track from sure. yeah the deluxe album so what's mm-hmm. what's one you want to play let's um, play I'm a believer the FM attack remix 
All right, man. This is I'm a Believer by Ollie Ride. Remixed by FM Attack.
was I'm a Believer by Ollie Ride, the FM Attack remix. Mm-hmm. And I'm here with Ollie Ride. Now, that was the track that you guys did the music video for, right? Yes, that's the most recent installment in the video trilogy. Or should I say the final chapter in this video trilogy for, the, for this record. So yeah. what was the uh, process like? Because I know during the filming of the video, there was some uh, behind-the-scenes dangers I'm not laughing at the danger by the way I'm laughing at my terrible question I know that's that's putting it lightly um, understatement of the century for the last video I keep calling it the last video it's the last video for this album cycle I think so you have the driver back to life and I'm a believer and each video is sort of following the same sort of character in the driver it's the guy who lost everything out and works his way back up back to life he gets to where he wants to be and then this final one took a bit more of a surrealist turn sort of inspired by once upon a time in hollywood sort of thing and 70s early 80s b movies and um sort of psychological horrors but it's still got a little bit of tongue-in-cheek behind it so um once again mr brad canan is the uh, director's helm and my friend Tristan Peach, he did the screenplay for it. So he, he sort of came up with this um, more of a narrative for the story. And I wanted to do something out in the desert. I wanted to do something that involved a cult. And I just didn't know how to piece or, you know, bring it all together. So fortunately, due to the uh, the dynamic team, Brad and Tristan, and we had a, had a great crew. There was like 15 people that we were transporting into the desert for this one. So many people involved. We only had a day to do it. Well, we had like a day and a half. We went out to this place called Vasquez Rocks in Calitas County. They've shot a lot of sci-fi movies there over the years. I think that's where they actually filmed the Star Trek fight sequence between that when Kirk fights that dinosaur. That's the famous one that they parody in uh, Bill and Ted, right? Yeah, yeah. It's this most alien landscape if you just go off the beaten track a little bit. So there was like 15 of us traversing these boulders and canyons and crevices. And I thought if anything was going to go wrong, it was going to be here. Someone's going to misstep and fall down a canyon. So we had to sort of brief everybody. <laughs> don't fall. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, don't fall. I hope you've all got insurance because you've kind of waived your right to complain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so off we set. And um, the vast majority of the video, the idea behind it was what's reality and, and and what's not and the character's sort of been led to believe that he's been kidnapped and sort of looking I suppose obsessive fandom if, if, if these sort of people can't have you than no one can and um, it was quite fun I'm sort of running around in, in the rocks and the narrative follows this crazed cult leader and cult members and you, you're sort of thinking wait is this just all paranoia in this guy's head or is it actually something more sinister afoot so you're always constantly questioning that and it's done in a tongue-in-cheek way anyway we got to the end of the day dismissed the rest of the cast so it was just myself brad tristan my photographer randy dear friend of mine who does all my pictures and um one of the cult members leo and as well as it being set out in the desert we'd also hired a uh, a beautiful cadillac deville 1966 this beautiful red canvas top car these huge boats that are like 15 foot long and of course we had the buick and the driver and i just thought it would be a nice way to sort of stick another classic car in there and um because it sort of goes with the whole 
aesthetic of the of the record. It's got this late seventies, early eighties referencing, I guess. Mm. Um, we were close to where Spielberg shot Jewel, which was his first movie. Do you ever remember that movie with the truck? Yes, it's a very simple film. Very very simple film. It's just a truck and a guy trying to escape the truck. And um, there's this unique. I mean, how's a tunnel unique? But it's just in a really unique location. It's sort of carved into the mountain in this crevice, like I suppose most tunnels are. But it's got this really cool look to it. And we weren't too far, so we took the Cadillac up there because we just wanted to get some B-roll of me driving out of the tunnel. I've come across this car in the desert. I've escaped this cult and being kidnapped. And we just thought it would make an interesting sort of cut. So um, it was about half ten at night. We'd done a few drive-bys and the guys were stood on the bank just adjacent to the tunnel. For the last shot, I was going to drive all the way down the canyon. It sort of meanders its way down around a few blind corners. But at the bottom of the canyon was a, it was an intersection where it was like a service road. I was going to perform a U-turn in there, drive back up, pick the guys up. And that was as wrapped for the day. And on the last take that we wrapped... I was heading down the canyon, I was turning left into this in- intersection, you know, legal manoeuvre, and then all of a sudden this guy in a Tacoma pickup truck is going about 60 down this hill. It's a canyon road, so there's like a drop on the other side, and he comes round this blind turning as I'm turning left, and he T-bones me right in the side. No word of a lie, dude. I, I relaxed, you know, some people sort of say... It sounds really corny, this, but some people say that life sort of flashes before your eyes. But I think for me, it was just this bizarre acceptance. It's like, all right, you're toast. And he hit me so hard. I mean, these vehicles, the, the Cadillacs, are like three-ton boats. He hit me so hard, it spun the vehicle 360 degrees. The fuel tank burst out, shot across the road. I was covered in fuel. He was fine, but I, I was in such shock and I cracked a rib and it was just... When the fire brigade turned up and the sheriff and the paramedics, they were like, if you were in any other car, if you were in a modern car, you'd have been down the canyon in a flash. Yeah. But it was just, these things are built of steel. There's no airbags. It's just a lap belt and a, and a sofa in there. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> it's so, so luckily the structure of this car, it, it bore the, the, the brunt of the impacts and um, just behind the driver's side door. And, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have Brad and Randy and all the guys there, they they were amazing. But I was I was taken to hospital straight away, and it was really fucking stressful night. <laughs> well, yeah, no doubt. I, I think because you made this weird, like, cryptic Facebook post, and then there was this pictures of you from the the shoot where you had the blood on your head. And so I remember thinking, like, oh, did he bonk his head like on a rock? And then I remember, like, you mentioned, like, you were in hospital. I'm like, oh, he probably slipped on those rocks, like you thought mm. people were going to do that's what i thought in my head and i phoned you yes and then when you told me what happened i'm just like holy fuck like what a fucking crazy story dude what was ironic was all of the gashes on the face were prosthetics the makeup artist mckenna guy she's amazing but when the paramedics turned up you can imagine that that they were in such shock because there was this huge gash on the, my head and cuts and bruises and they're like we need 10 cc's of this dead and, yeah. and i was like no 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 it's, it's not real the only pain that i'm experiencing is on my side yeah <laughs> they were sort of prodding away at the prosthetics and i'm like this is awesome that's like focus guys yeah. <laughs> maybe it was bizarre foreshadowing but the post that i made was 
hours earlier on in the day and I was sort of joking oh the things that I sort of you know suffering for your art sort of thing yeah so it was you know ironic that you know five hours later I would have actually been in a car accident so yeah now i almost feel very naive did i phone you because of that post because i think i did i think yeah i think you did yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so i'm an idiot then (laughs) (laughs) no you did call me after the car accident i remember you doing it and it was very sweet of you to do so is everything okay like as far as your ribs and shit or at first because your adrenaline's sort of racing through your body and I'd never I wouldn't wish it upon anyone of course but I'd never been in that situation before so and I said to the paramedic I only fucking got in last night and now this and the first thing that goes through your head is the car it's a fucking classic car you worry about the insurance side and I, I was covered we were all covered but the fucking other driver wasn't insured and it was his fault so we're still going through that procedure at the moment um, the whole process but I had a bit of a moment in the ambulance that you know they were like you know you're covered in fuel this has happened to you and I was I'm not ashamed to say I had a bit of a um, you know sort of thank you lucky stars moment mm-hmm. so that was quite emotional and when I got to hospital you know I had x-rays and stuff and uh but I had the wrong x-ray, I think. I didn't have, like, a CT or... <laughs> They're going to be like, oh, something's wrong with your ovaries, sir. And like, <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, it was, so they couldn't actually determine because the adrenaline was still rushing through my body. So when they asked me, what level of pain are you experiencing at this moment in time? A scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst. I was like, oh, maybe, like, 3. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'm fine. But, of course, so they gave me a Tylenol, pat me on the back and sent me on my way. Of course... The next day, I couldn't write myself. I couldn't get up. Mm. My left side was black and bruised. It was horrible. And of course, we still had pickup shots to do. So Brad would bless him. He was like, look, we don't have to continue here. But I had no option. I've, I'm only in LA for a few days. The money's been put down. We've got to finish this. But ironically, again, it sort of worked in our favor because I meant to have the, the crap kicked out of me. It's meant to look like that in this video. Mm-hmm. So I'm clenching my side in the opening shot. It's like, because I've got a cracked rib. And so that was excruciating. Um, Anyway, we got the video done and it turned out great in the end. But that was, um, we went through hell to to get this one done. And, um, but I think it plays in really well with with the whole story. You know, it's kind of a, an epic little adventure wrapped up in a four or five minute video. So it, it's, uh, I'm really, really happy with it. But of course, I was only in LA for like four or five days. Then I had to fly onto Miami and flying with Crack Rib. And I had to do some recording down there. And I just, my stamina vocally just dropped because you have to support with your diaphragm and everything. And I couldn't do it. Mm. That was extremely difficult. And of course, I had the London show coming up and um, I just thought, holy shit, I can't cancel this. So I went to physiotherapy, osteopath, other x-rays and lots of medication. And um, I'm making it sound like it could have been a hell of a lot worse. I was really, really lucky. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. And I really hope it doesn't happen again. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, listen, I'm glad you're okay. And uh, I think we should celebrate by listening to some music. So how about we play one more track from the deluxe one? We don't want to play too many because it's a special bonus thing for the people who yes. who ordered it. Yes. But how about we listen to the Calyx, uh remix because this one is cool. This is Never Live Without You by Ollie Ride, the Calyx remix. I treat life for cash in the palace I gave. Run no mile downtown to see a familiar face. I'll take any chance, any chance to tell you. To see what it's been like just in a silhouette. Every second after second going out of my head. I'll do anything, anything you want to. So I cut all my time. 
that was Never Live Without You by Ollie Ride, the Calyx remix. And uh, I should just point out and remind people that there is a deluxe edition of Thanks in Advance, the Ollie Ride album. And we're playing some of the tracks from the deluxe edition that you actually can't hear unless you buy the physical version. So these are very special tracks. But how about you uh, tell me about uh, yeah getting Calyx to do uh, this one? Yes. Yeah. Calyx. Um, Lee, he actually was like a big supporter of that track when it first came out, I recall. And so when it came down to doing the deluxe version, he was the first person that I um, I had in mind. And uh, with everybody that I selected and who came forward and devoted their time and talent and energy, I think each one has got such a unique approach and um and i thought who better to sort of kick off the the deluxe version than um the man himself Kalax. so uh yeah he, he knocked this track out of the park i love it the the greatest joy i will just say about this whole deluxe experience and approaching you know my favorite producers um stylistically everyone is every single approach that they've taken is is so intrinsically them but it makes it a very eclectic record. So no two tracks sound similar. And that can be very easy to... I suppose that can happen very quickly in Synthwave as well, because there is a lot of... How can I put it politely? There's a lot of copycatting, and forgive me, that's my biggest bone of contention. I mean, we could talk about this till the cows come home, but I, I feel like with every genre, with every particular style, you have... I think Aaron at Valingo said this, or there was a first wave of the pioneers of this genre, as, as you call it. And then there's the second wave. And I, I think now it's becoming far more broad. It's becoming more eclectic. And I feel like the that's the only way that glass ceilings can be broken. And, and we have this discussion in FM with our management and agent all the time. I'm sure there are other people that can attest to the same line of thinking. Is that, yes, we have such a, a passionate ardent fan base and I'm, I'm not talking about us specifically but we're lucky to have people that are so passionate about things however that passion can cross into the realms of fanatical you know the, the, the blinkers go on sort of thing they're not prepared to indulge anything else what upsets me about that mentality though because music to me is like so important but it's like there's so much out there and you just have to look see what what frustrates me is the knee-jerk reaction of like oh somebody changed their sound so now they're done with synthwave i think with a lot of people they really to them it's like you know you have to use these sounds you have to use these drum samples you have to use this this and this i just think it's the biggest load of forgive me bollocks that i've ever heard because that's how things become homogenized and stale and yeah 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 and i mean i completely agree i think there's also uh, an argument to be made that sometimes setting limitations can actually be good for an artist's uh, creativity you know like there's this um there's this awesome artist that i had on the show called uh, master boot record and he makes almost like chiptune metal music it's like metal but made with chiptune sounds and he pretty much uses the same sounds for all of his songs and again there's no one else that's making music like him so it, when you hear his stuff it's like oh that's master boot record but the thing is it might be like an artificial limitation but in that way he focuses solely on melody and structure and these things because he's not you know spending days 
searching through sample banks looking for you know instruments to play right yeah i i mean ultimately i i feel like there are only a few questions that i ask myself whenever i sort of embark on creating anything particularly when it's you know it's an actual song not necessarily a piece of music because i, I don't necessarily write instrumentals i'm coming at it from a, a songwriter's point of view and also i i, I don't really deem what I do as synthwave and I think most people would agree with that by now the only questions that I concern myself is does it resonate with me does it have a, a message and is it true believe it or not I think those are the main things that people uh, resonate with as, as well it, it has some sort of um connection with people they develop a connection with it and if it just so happens that you're of the camp that likes instrumentals perfect but it's not vocal synth wave i just think there are songs and then there are instrumentals i think the knee-jerk reaction as you as you as you spoke about before that i've had to contend with is obviously taking a step out of the spotlight of something that people love and have developed a bond with over a period of time and then turning the dial in a different direction on my own and i i feel like i always wanted it to be sort of a love or a hate thing because i don't like the in-between but i think if i'd sort of followed in the footsteps of what i was doing in fm then it would just be a watered down version of what I'm already doing. So it sort of defeats the object of a solo project. So I think people can be very quick to formulate an opinion. But the solo album, like, I mean, you've got a lot of great songs on here. I'm, I'm really proud of it because I, I always wanted to um, treat it as if it was like a classic 80s pop record, but with modern production. I wasn't coming at it from, I want to write a synthwave album. I just wanted to, I grew up on those classic records and I wanted to do something that leaned upon those and, and also just more directly in line with my influences. Obviously, they come out a little bit when I'm working with Cole, but this is far more on the nose of, you know, where I come from. And we'll, you know, we'll only continue to develop. And uh, I just wanted people to have, to offer up a different slice here. And But it, at its heart, it's not 50-50 instrumentals and, and, and songs. It's, it's meant to be an album that has a story to it and i'm immensely proud of it a lot of work went into it and, and each one's kind of like a, a a true story um seen through the eyes of one character or another <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. well no i mean it's great and my thing you know that i connect with music is always some sort of electronic element you can literally have like a rock song and as long as there's some cool little like you know synth melody like going through the thing yeah that's all that's required for my brain to be like ooh, this is cool there, there always has to be some synth somewhere like even when i was thinking like you know before you're talking about foreigner yeah okay so you know that song urgent oh yeah you know it's urgent <laughs> so no <laughs> one of my favorite singers so what i what i like about that track there is this synth thing that happens this weird yeah. sound and that was my hook to that song because i remember like listening to it on the radio after he says the word urgent it's like urgent and there's that kind of sound yeah, yeah yeah that's my hook in that song urgent i don't know why i don't even know how it's created it, it could be a fucking modulated guitar for all i know but it's like obviously it's it's fucking put through some sort of process so 
sometimes my hook can be the simplest of things, you know? Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Look, the point is <laughs> oh, that it's been lovely to chat with you, but we've been talking for a long time. <laughs> so shut the fuck up and get off the line. No, I- <laughs> Yeah, it has been lovely chatting. I uh, you you gotta have a lot to go through to edit down, but um, yeah, I, what I usually do is I just go in and cut out whenever the guest talks. <laughs> Makes it far more entertaining for yourself. Yeah, right? yeah. Besides electronic music, the other thing I like is the sound of my own voice. So what I do is I just edit out. Wait, when you were uh, when you were young and you were singing in like wedding bands and shit, mm. was this always your style? Like, did you always sing in this high register? Did you try and sing in different styles, and then you sort of landed on? oh, this is what my voice is best at? I think it was just the range that stuck with me, really. I mean, I, I always revered singers like Freddie Mercury and uh, uh, Bobby Kimball from Toto, Robert Plant, George Michael, Aretha Franklin, and, my, and Lou Graham, Foreigner. I mean, come on. Th- these were people that could really belt with conviction. And I just had a, a lighter voice back then, and I held on to my head voice and high chest voice, whereas most guys tend to lose it or need to work it into shape i just was using what i had and over the years i've sort of refined it and 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 developed more power with it even since running in the night three years ago my i've learned how to to give my voice a little bit more body so it's not just the high end which sort of people misconstrued as this uh this woman who's singing running in the night but (laughs) it's just because i had a lighter voice and i can still you know i still hit the notes but i've just figured out a way to have more body there so um and and that's just working on technique over the years and and projecting in a different way but i'm lucky in a way it's um when it works it's quite liberating to be able to sort of belt up there but those were the the singers that i sort of modeled myself on because I just thought they were absolutely sublime and I thought that's what a rock and roll singer or a soul singer should sound like, you know. Yeah. It's all right to hit the notes, but it's you got to do them with um, precision and um, emotion because otherwise it's just wailing your head off. <laughs> well, you know, you got a you got a lovely voice there. Uh, when um, you know, when FM84 when he came up with that song, obviously I've said this a billion times. I'm not going to play it today on purpose because I've played this track so many times on the show, but Wild Ones is like one of the best songs there is. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> I'm proud of that one. Yeah. No, it's great. It, <laughs> it was a nightmare to record actually because I take it down. I think it's two semitones, so full tone live because we were opening up with it on the last tour. And I thought, shit, if I have to do this in the original key every night, it's going to kill me. I won't be able to do the rest of the set. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite songs, actually, just because lyrically it's, it's got a nice story to it. It's very fun to sing. And it's for me, it always had like this um, queen meets simple minds feel. That's what I would all for with it. It's a song I can play to people. You know, this is the kind of music I talk about on my show. And this is the stuff I'm really passionate about. And it's one of those crossovers where it's just such a great pop song that people get it you know because sometimes when i play some of the other synth stuff like people don't always get it right away unless they're like my record well no 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 no, no. <laughs> like, you know because yours as well like like back to life for example i don't mean i always have to preface this i am the kind of guy that gravitates towards particular tracks on albums yes obviously i was an album guy when i was young because i didn't have any money so when you bought an album it was like well this is this is the album i have right now and so i'm gonna listen to everything yeah exactly now i'm dealing with a playlist that's 35 days long and so when i listen to people's albums now i do gravitate and i go okay well this is these are my favorites from the thing not to uh you know i'd pick favorites is what i'm saying of course yeah we all do i think um 
Um, and so, and this album in particular, like Back to Life, I think is the star. I, I'm a believer. I like. There's a nice little like uh, Lisa Lafied uh, tribute bass line in there. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a tipping of the cap to that, by which a few people have picked up on. But it, it's uh, luckily I sort of skirt around the edges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, we're talking about it, so we might as well listen to it. I know we already played the FM Attack remix, but I do really love the original, so let's uh, give it a spin. This is I'm a Believer by Ollie Ride.
And that was I Am a Believer by Ollie Ride, the original album version. And uh, I love that one. It's also, it's great how different some of the remix interpretations are. I mean, I know you were talking about that earlier, but definitely now that we've had a chance to sort of hear some of them and can hear just how different the interpretations uh, are. And I think it's really cool. I mean, it's like everyone you've chosen to be on the thing, like they're all just such great musicians. I mean, you guys are all great musicians. I mean, I wish... I wish I had like a billion dollars. I was thinking about that. What a dumb sentence starter. Uh, some of these people, there's just so much money behind them. Um, like, you know, whenever I sign into YouTube, for example. Yeah. YouTube really wants me to know who Billie Eilish is. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's certain, I, I'm not, nothing against her as an artist. It's just like every time I sign into YouTube, there's always like, Billie Eilish interview from a year ago and now. Oh, Billie Eilish is eating a hot wing. Oh, Billie Eilish this. And I'm like, how much fucking money is behind this person where like they are just paying YouTube to let me know that this person exists. And Christ, I wish I had that money where I could just take all of my favorite fucking, you know, like acts of the people that I have on the show and the music because I don't listen to contemporary music anymore. eh? Like it's all just this indie electronic pop retro music. Like that's pretty much all I listen to. Yeah, I think I I don't particularly listen to Top 40. Well, it drives me nuts because I don't get what's going on. Like, as my son does, because he'll just put on Spotify when he plays games, and so he'll listen to what is delivered to him. Oh, yeah. Yesterday, he's just like, how do you spell Billy? Because he wanted to write Billy Ray Cyrus to listen to that stupid Old Town Road song. Mm. And I'm like, what a fucking calculated... Like, that song is, like, number one for a really long time. This Billy Ray Cyrus song on Little Nas or Nas X or whatever the hell he is. (laughs) I don't fucking know. <laughs> but it's, seriously, it's this huge fucking song just because there's like a country music and it's kind of a rap song, but it's kind of a country song. I don't get why it's so popular. Like, I'm not being like a jaded old man. I'm like, this song is so simple. Like, it's not even cool. I don't know. I don't begrudge pop music. I don't hate pop music for no reason. If a song is catchy, if it's got a cool melody and a catchy chorus, I have no... Uh, like sometimes people just hate contemporary music because that's a cool thing to do because it makes you like oh you know well I, I don't buy into that either I mean I think as you say if, if it's got some sort of a point of melodic interest or a cool lyric I, I'm right there with you the, my issue that I, I take with a lot of it is gone are choruses it's more to do with a um, almost like an anti-chorus so you have a brief you have the pre-chorus for example which will probably be the main focus and then you have some sort of bloody kazoo solo or vocal um <laughs> sounds like an old fart here. yeah i know i hate that's the stuff that the stuff that i actually dislike in music if i could say is staccato trumpet sounds oh christ on a bunch. you know like when you're listening it's just like <laughs> like whenever music has that i want to fucking smash something like i just hate that with a passion so i, I avoid that at all costs really I, I'm still a, of the mindset a, a chorus should be good yeah it should be good it should have like the, the melodic centerpiece as it were but like a proper fucking chorus I mean Christ that, that's why I suppose I gravitate towards so much of um, years gone by and records of you know 25 30 years ago I mean a lot of the records that I like now will be on the alternative charts yeah because they seem to that's where it seems to have gone but you celebrate alternative music a hell of a lot more than we do in the UK which gives me comfort but it's there's such a monopoly now well the monopoly of majors has always existed but it's it's you know 
pay-to-play playlists and so on and so forth, which is starting to emerge even in the scene with a few um, with a few folks. Yeah, I I don't know how. Um, well, in fact, I do. The the way that we break the glass ceiling with this genre is just writing the best possible music that we can, and rather than worrying about politics of what's deemed to be correct in the genre or what you should do, I think I don't write music for anybody else but myself. If people choose to, to pull up a chair and immerse themselves in it, then fucking hell, aren't I lucky? I'll keep going. Mm-hmm. And um, that's inspiring in itself. But I don't sit down and think, this is what Betty Mary Potts of Bognoregius is going to dig, or some person in Massachusetts, what their opinion is. I'm not sort of writing just, by committee. I just, I just love the idea of all the references you could have pulled. I actually know Bognoregius because my aunt and uncle live there. So that is... They live in Bognoregius. Uh-huh. Are you hugging my squirrel? <laughs> Hell, that's um, that's not too far away from me, actually, on the South Coast. But you know what I mean? I think the worst thing that you can possibly do and the easiest mistake that people make is writing or designing by committee. And when I get, sometimes I get messages from individuals and they'll be like, what do you think to my song? And I know that they've got purest intentions, but if you actually give the real opinion, which is subjective in itself, so what the fuck does my opinion matter? And then you give them something that they don't want to hear, then they get in an arse about it. Well, that's why... Yeah, I, I don't actually. It's weird. I've gone this long and I don't give people my opinion. Mm. My basic opinion is if I play it on the show, I like it. And that's it. B- because I'm very particular. Like I'm I think I've got a, like a good ear for melody and stuff like this. And so when I when I listen to people's stuff, I could say things like I think that sometimes like sometimes people send me a song and I'm like, I think I have advice here that would improve this song, but I just purposely don't give it because I'm like, well, then now I'm sort of invading into their like creativity. Like if I was a producer and had money, okay, I would be in a completely different headspace. Like if I sit like right now said, hey, Ollie, I've got fucking 20 grand. I want you to write a song for me. I would probably be more like almost like a producer of a movie where where I would be like, hey, like this instrument, I like this one. And oh, you know, when you do that note, maybe change that note to this note. I could give notes like that, but I wouldn't ever want to do it unless I was literally like commissioning a piece. You know what I mean? But I I think, you know, I've worked with producers like that and uh, and A&R guys, and that's that's part of the job description. But what I'm saying is I, I think when people... I mean, I sound really cynical now, and I was sort of getting away further and further from what I wanted to talk about. My album, <laughs> when, I, when I see, um, you know, that there are new producers that, oh, I've done this, I've made this song in the style of this particular song from this exact artist, which has just done it before, and it's a less accomplished version. It's I get so disappointed with when I see stuff like that. It's just like, write something original. You, you know, there's enough reference material, fine, but there's enough tools out there and inspiration to sort of lean upon, to sort of cultivate something original. This is sort of what really catalyzed my desire to just, my record was going to be made on my own terms, doing the songs that I want to write 
in the style that I want to do it, with the instruments that I want to do it, be it on my head only sort of thing. I thought you'd be quite impressed with the way I sort of turned that background to my album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite good. Yeah, no, but the thing is, obviously, a, a lot of the stuff in this scene has a nostalgic aspect to it. And so I think sometimes people get confused. Like, I, I still like the idea. What I love about Synthwave when I first discovered it in this scene is that the music was new, mm-hmm. but it was old. Like, there was sort of like this combination of things where it's like sort of new, but it's still harken back to like this time and sometimes that had to do with the instruments being used sometimes it has to do with the structure of the song sometimes it has to do with the type of choruses you know like when i listen to like when you sing it's like it's just a way that i'm not hearing people sing like this on the radio they're not doing choruses like this they're not to me it's like it's one thing to take inspiration but i know what you're talking about and i see that sometimes where people Like, I've had people get mad at me on this show because, like, I would do episodes, and purposefully in the old days, and I still do this now, we very rarely talk about actual music production. So even though this is a sort of quote-unquote music show, we often just end up talking about movies and video games and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. so I've had comments before get mad. I remember, like, on a Perturbator episode, I, I specifically made a joke where it's like where we joked about the fact that we weren't going to talk about what instruments he uses or what programs he uses. Mm. And then I get like an angry comment, you know, going like, hey man, I want to know like what he uses and all this stuff. No, and I'm like, I... why? So so you can just like, he's already making perturbator music. You know, so sometimes people follow tutorials like synthwave tutorials and they make the song no. that the guy made in the tutorial. Yes. I understand it. If that's your stepping stone to learning song structure, to learning a program, obviously following along with a, t- a tutorial is a a good way of going how do how do i set up a beat in logic how do i set down a midi sequence in fruity loops or whatever like i get that but then to release it as a song and be upset or if there's any criticism that comes your way that's where it gets a little weird you know like maybe you make that song and you keep it for yourself and that's just your this is what i learned and this is what i'm going to do with my newfound education entirely legitimate to do something like that but I, I think if you're just regurgitating sort of a half-baked version of something that's already been realised, then it's not offering anything. And it's not. And this is this is what I'm trying to say: is I would love nothing more from this genre to sort of flourish to the next level. Like I say, I'm in a very fortunate position that I'm part of something, or at least the last time I've checked, I'm part of something that is enjoyed by a lot of people and. and I'm sure the the Midnight would say exactly the same, and and Gunship, Geordie, of course. Um, I'm very lucky that it's sort of on a sort of trajectory of its own. Never take it for granted. It's like doing a solo record. I'd love nothing more than that to be the the actual weight of a whole movement. And it's bubbling there. It it, it is it is uh, simmering, should I say, to sort of break over to the other side. But it's never going to happen if people continue to follow dogmatic tidal practices and just but then maybe that's just my opinion because like i say i'm i'm not an expert when it comes to synthwave itself i i'm a huge fan of nostalgia and records classic records of, of the time and and you got to bear in mind andy that it was such a rich decade 
or a time. And yes, we're nostalgic for a time that we n- never necessarily lived, but it wasn't just about fucking palm trees and DeLoreans and arcades and things like that. Hey, man, hey listen, yes, it was. I'm from Canada. And if I can tell you one <laughs> thing about my childhood, there were a lot of palm trees. We had bears, the Canadian flag, yeah. and occasions. <laughs> That's the reality, Andy. So no, I'm not begrudging people for liking those things. Hell, my, my colleague has a DeLorean, but there were also other sides to it as well. And and I'm sort of just trying to exploit or investigate another area. Who could forget David Bowie, Brian Ferry, Tears Fizz, Mm -hmm. Peter Gabriel, all these sort of things. There's a different side to it. And and that comes with an imagery, an entire own aesthetic of itself. And if I can just slightly turn the dial, we'll offer another... (laughs) Did you just turn the dial there? Yeah. All right, man. Look, we've been talking for so long, and I want to wrap this up, but I want to... uh, Maybe we'll listen to one more song, and I know we already listened to the remix, the Calyx version, but uh, we should probably listen to the original, because this is uh, an awesome track. This is Never Live Without You. It's the the first one on uh, the album, right? That's correct. This was the second song I wrote for the album. It quickly became apparent as a um, a clear front runner for the sort of the the feeling of the, the entire record. It's got a bit of a Springsteen sensibility to it in there, and uh, I just love the energy. Uh, it's pretty unbridled, and um, we played it on tour a few times with uh, FM. He did an interpretation of it, uh, but this, my friends, is the real deal. This is the real cut.
And that was Never Live Without You by Ollie Ride. And I'm here with Ollie Ride for probably the longest fucking conversation I've ever had on this show. Uh, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good, man. I, I, are you trying to sort of tell me something? Have you just had enough? Are you about to throw in the towel here? <laughs> no, that's not a way to treat your fucking guests, is it? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Let it be known, guys, that, oh, yeah, he'll, he'll rope you in with his good looks and chiseled jawline and mm. ostensibly good banter. But then when you're in the, the doldrums of his uh, Beyond Synth podcast, it just, um, he... Uh, he reverses it all. Well, see, that's what happens. You know, usually, like, after recording for, like, an hour and a half, the cocaine wears off. <laughs> Look, man, I uh, I don't have a genuine personality, all right? It only comes out through the use of uh, the strongest narcotics. I'm a more of a black tar heroin kind of guy. Anyways, you were in the middle of uh, telling a story. <laughs> Listen, I'm trying to promote my album here. Fuck's sake, I need to eat, man. <laughs> promote this. <laughs> like, you can't see what I'm doing. I'm giving you a hand gesture. Well, look, dude, listen. We've been talking We've been talking for way too long. This is like, I don't usually record for this long. Well, aren't you lucky? I don't usually talk for this long. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have to go and edit this fucking thing. Oh, my God. The point is that you're a cool guy, a very talented fellow. I enjoy both your solo stuff and your collaborations with Mr. Colin Bennett, who uh, makes, uh, yeah, makes fucking uh, awesome music. And obviously, I'm looking forward to whatever you guys come up with next. I know there's some stuff being worked on. Me too. Me too, man. Um I think that just to allay people's concerns as well, because obviously I get, I, I get this one a lot, is this record, solo record, was, was bred out of a necessity to work. And I, I think we spoke about this in Toronto as well. You know, his circumstances are different to mine, and um, I, I just I, I can't stand periods of inactivity that are prolonged. Mm. So I'm there when he needs me, and I, uh, you know, I, I sincerely hope it's soon. But again, you can't sort of go into these things half-assed, and so that's why I took advantage of the time that I had, and uh, you know, I had all these songs ready, and um, I mean, I've actually even got a second record ready. <laughs> that's the thing. Um, but it'll probably be a while until anybody hears that or if people want to hear it but um, I think uh, I have everything to be grateful for at this moment in time given the reception of the record and uh, I was really on the edge of my seat my friend so I'm glad that it's um, that people have sort of welcomed it with open arms and I appreciate you taking the time so much time to talk to me about it I mean, we talked about it a little bit. Most of the time it was you talking about uh, whatever you were talking about. But uh... <laughs> Even I don't remember. That's the... Yeah, you asked me a couple of questions about quiche. Well, okay, yeah. What's your favorite recipe? Your favorite quiche. Quiche Lorraine. Quiche is Lorraine. So are you just music all the time? Do you do anything for fun? Do you play games or like watch movies? Like, what the fuck do you do? I don't have fun. <laughs> What's that? Fun. Jesus Christ. A lot of sex. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, 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 I'm married, so I have to live vicariously through other people. Hey, that doesn't mean today I'm having a lot of sex with different people. Oh, my God. Scrub that. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying, whenever whenever I see people who seem to be in sort of like active, fun relationships, I'm just like, oh, that's good for them. Good for them. You know, once you have kids and stuff, it's uh, a lot of it, it. Everything becomes sort of procedural in the household. Yeah, yeah, and this goes here. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Nearly there. Excellent. Good night, dear. <laughs> I think okay, um, you're overestimating my wife's relationship. That I would say good night when we were finished. Right. 
Get the fuck out. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I shake hands, I get my briefcase, and... Uh... And that concludes tonight's presentation. <laughs> now, I am, to answer your question, um, truthfully, I am music full-time. I see it as, well, it is a job, but it's a very fun job, but it can equally be agonizing. So I don't necessarily work the 9 to 5. I more or less work the 10 till 2 a.m. Mm. And because most of the people that I know are based on the West Coast of America, it doesn't really um, align timing-wise with um, GMT. So uh, usually I'm a bit of a night owl. But I, I love movies. I love going to the cinema. I am not such an avid gamer, but I'm really looking forward to um, this new Star Wars game. I'm a, a huge Star Wars fan. The Fallen Order, this new sort of uh, adventure game. So I'm big. I'm a big geek when it comes to that sort of thing. And I also um, massively into fine art. So I, I studied graphic design and so on and so forth. So I'm I uh, all of the outfits I sort of sketch out and design, and um, I'm always doodling and drawing. So I do, I do that to, to relax. I like that you put the intonation on the word fine. You you, you said it like fine art, like this. Like it, you raised the, on the fine. Did I? Yeah. I could just deliver it more flatly if you want. Well, no, see, if I say that word, I say like fine art, right? But you're like fine art, you yeah. know, like like it, it, the emphasis is on the, the, the second half of the word fine. It's, it's all in the the, uh, the subtleties of my uh, inflections. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because no, I know people like that who do like, I'll say, what's on TV? And some people call it the TV. The TV? Yeah, like people, they put the emphasis on the T, whereas I guess I put the emphasis on the V. TV. Yeah, I say TV, and some people go, TV. What's on TV? TV sounds like um, some sort of medication. It, it's more of a condition. TV? Yes. <laughs> I contracted TV. Oh, where did you holiday this year? Well, I holidayed into V. <laughs> that was a painful silence there. <laughs> no, that's internet delay, I swear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Gotta get a bigger bandwidth, boy. <laughs> Actually, you know what? My internet... I wanted to cl- I wanted to quit my internet and go with like a third party company, but it turns out my internet is actually super fast, and I wasn't aware of it until I did a test just like today. What do you stream multiple adult entertainment sites at the same time? I'm not a degenerate. Well, of course you're a degenerate. I have, I have an online prayer group, and it requires multiple lanes of bandwidth. So what a load of. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, look, man, listen, it was lovely to talk to you. I want you to have a lovely day and to get back to work. I feel like maybe this conversation has just taken two hours out of your time to be writing some sort of hit song, so... I'm actually writing a song right now. Your left hand this whole time has just been, like, fucking, like, doing notes on the page. Anyway, man, look... Listen, it was lovely to talk to you. Likewise, buddy. Absolute pleasure as always. Nice to get to know you in reverse. It was long overdue. Long overdue, actually. Hopefully I haven't um, sent people to sleep on the airwaves, but uh, even if I have, I just pray you're not driving and you're um, in a recumbent position. It still counts as a listen for me, so I don't care where they are. Once they hit play, it counts as a listen. <laughs> That's okay, okay, Those are the numbers I have to send back to my fucking A&R guy. Right, we're in a society of metrics now so i understand it is uh... yeah so so when people when i sort of have to show my numbers to people and it's like listen i swear to christ 17 people listen to my show and they're like prove it and i'm like look 17 plays and then that's all that matters come on now you're being harsh on yourself yeah 23 <laughs> <laughs> anyways look yes uh you have a lovely day where you are go write more music people should go check out the deluxe version of the album uh and they can get that at <laughs> ollyride.org 
You will be getting no such copy at the Ollie Ride Orgy. There is no orgs or orgies, whatever. You can get it from New Re- on New Retrowave Records, the New Retrowave Bandcamp, and uh, all reputable uh, major distributors and online stores. Cool, man. Well, look, you have a lovely day. You too, my friend. Absolute pleasure. All right, and that was my chat with Ollie Ride. Chat. Does it count as a chat if it's like two and a half hours long? Anyway, Ollie is a lovely man. I enjoy chatting with him. And when we occasionally find the time to uh, talk privately, he's always uh, a nice... He's just got a good energy, and I'm happy that he's very uh, committed to his art and stuff like that. I think that's his main sort of concern, and it makes me happy. And uh, he's a really talented guy. So if you get a chance to see him perform, I suggest you do it. I think he is... I, I mean, I don't want to offend anybody, but I mean, he is the best front man in this scene. Like, he, he is a performer, and he, and he, he performs. Uh, <laughs> what a weird thing to say. Okay, look, thanks for listening to this show. My plan is to start doing live shows next week. So there might be another regular episode of Beyond Synth before we start doing the live shows. And then hopefully it just falls into place and uh, that's the plan so thank you very much for listening don't forget to like and subscribe to all the different beyond synth uh, things on the internet the youtube the twitch twitter facebook and obviously i'm super grateful to all the people who support beyond synth uh, on patreon or the paypals but if you listen to this show and you know you can't support the show that way for whatever reason uh that's perfectly fine but if you could take a moment of your time i would really appreciate it if you liked and commented on the show on iTunes and SoundCloud and YouTube because that's also a way that your support is recognized, especially by the fucking algorithms. Algorithms. <laughs> algorithms. And, and all that stuff, you know what I mean? So it would mean a lot to me if, uh, you know, whenever you listen to this show, just, uh, you know, hop on iTunes and leave a review and uh, check out the YouTube channel and make sure you like the videos and leave a comment or something. Because uh, it's, it's that activity that makes the shows sort of pop up in uh, in people's feeds and stuff like that. And so um, I'm really going to be hammering that home this year is uh, getting you guys to to do that because obviously I know that not everyone can uh, support the show uh, financially and there are many different ways to support the show and also just by listening to it is also supporting the show as well but uh, hey man do me this solid and I will do you a solid what? I shouldn't have said that out loud alright look have a lovely day Uh, thanks for listening to Beyond Synth 2020 and I will catch you next time on the best synthwave chat show there is thanks for listening If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it by going to patreon.com slash beyondsynth, or you can donate directly on beyondsynth.com. Beyond Synth can be found on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, 
and iTunes. And remember to like and subscribe to Beyond Synth on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch. Until next time. Until next time.